The sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Uh, This is going to be fun. Our first preview where we actually have seen a preseason game from the team involved. And yes, most of the hype last night in the Charlotte-Toronto game was about LaMelo Ball. And don't worry, we uh, still have the Charlotte preview coming for that reason. Uh, But let's talk Raptors here with Blake Murphy of The Athletic. How are you doing? I'm doing well, man. Thanks for having me back on. This is uh, one of my favorite annual traditions. Well, thanks. I I appreciate it. And uh, it is one of mine as well. So I I guess to start, we were talking about this a little bit before we came out on the air, but just like, what is the feeling about this being, for the time being at least, the Tampa Bay Raptors? Yeah, it's weird hearing some of what's gone into this move and just how quickly it all had to happen because the Canadian government here, um, you know, really pushed that decision to the last possible minute. It's pretty incredible that that it all worked in such a narrow timeline and obviously it wasn't perfect. Uh, the Raptors as an organization had three positive COVID tests last week, so um, not completely in the clear in that regard, but it sounds like uh, at least, you know, the construction of a makeshift practice facility and getting their staff and families down to Florida has gone about uh, as well as you could have hoped uh, considering, but uh, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be a weird one. At least Amelie Arena in Tampa has you know it's hosted uh i believe a a women's final four before it's hosted some college level action uh and obviously it's the home of the tampa bay lightning so so i think that'll at least look like an nba arena uh whether it feels like a real raptor season with zoom only and at least for now no crowds uh is another thing entirely Uh, i do think if crowds are allowed at some point you know you might have that tampa audience embrace the raptors uh and make it a bit of a home court vibe but uh you know i don't think this is going to be uh quite the you know it's certainly not going to be jurassic park during the playoffs outside of scotia bank arena or anything like that yeah i i mean really you would think for a true practical impact for a raptors fan it doesn't matter you weren't going to the games anyway but is there just a feeling locally you think that like this is weird not having them in town that that like people are going to be less interested in them or is it just hey we can't go to the games anyway what does it matter yeah i mean i i don't think so like at at least speaking in terms of television ratings and what i experienced from like social or my own article metrics and stuff like that uh, i didn't notice that as much in the bubble as i maybe anticipated um i think part of that is obviously people are at home and then there's not a ton to distract yourself with so basketball is a natural uh a natural place you know i could see that maybe more more Toronto is such a great place to be in the springtime when, when the playoffs pick up and there's excitement around the team. Uh, I could see that maybe being taking a hit. Um, you know, there are some other things uh, like the Terrence Davis situation that, that have, you know, soured at least some people in the fan base for the time being as well. So, you know, you never know 
how all these things are going to go taken all together. Um, the one benefit the Raptors have, if you're, you know, if you if you purely want to go at it from, a, you know, interest and market standpoint, is that the NBA is starting up in advance of the NHL, uh, which usually that's reversed. So the Raptors will have this rare window of being the only team playing here uh, with baseball and hockey both out of season. They've never had that before. So um, maybe you can pick up additional interest that way and get some momentum going early season to kind of, you know, they're going to need to sell merch online and and they're going to need to pump those open gym episodes out to, to keep everyone engaged open gym episodes are they they're actually like showing stuff from the practices is that what oh that is? no sorry um so open gym is uh it's been it's been here for nine or ten years um it's basically uh, a documentary series that follows the team every year oh, uh, and at some seasons they've done like monthly episodes some they've done weekly episodes uh in the bubble they did one like three-hour, four-part documentary um, kind of chronicling everything that happened in the bubble. It's this really cool thing that... Um, so it's between MLSE, the owners of the Raptors, and Bell, who are partial owner of the Raptors. They put it together. Um, you know, I don't know what their game plan is for the relaunch, but there's a member of that crew down in uh, Tampa with the team to kind of chronicle everything from the inside. It's this really cool thing they've done um, since a little before Masai Ujiri's tenure started that gives uh, Raptors fans this really cool insight into the team and like unprecedented level of access. Like it's kind of like those old like NHL 24 sevens or um, the NFL version of that, but it's just been happening for nine years here. Huh? Yeah. That never actually crossed my radar screen. I guess uh, that shows my ignorance uh, about the Toronto Raptors. Uh, at least uh, in the local fan base, hopefully or, not. Or uh, it shows your your floor. lack of Canadian cable stations in uh, out, out west <laughs> in the U.S. So, <laughs> um, so let's talk a little bit about just quickly what you saw last night. Anything surprise you from that preseason game against the Hornets? Um, surprise, maybe not, you know, obviously with anything like that, there's, there's going to be some positives and negatives. I thought Malachi Flynn was probably the biggest positive. Um, you know, when you go plus 35 in 20 minutes, I don't care what the context of the game is. Uh, that's pretty impressive. And he looked pretty ready. You know, the, the shot him hitting three of six on threes and even just taking six threes in 20 minutes was encouraging to me. Uh, some of the team defense stuff that, that he was doing in terms of switching and, and cutting off drives and, you know, kind of show and recovery stuff uh, was encouraging about you know his potential to maybe see minutes this year uh, and then Matt Thomas was was really good and I think everyone knows Matt Thomas can shoot but as a smaller shooting specialist you know you either have to be JJ Redick levels of quick and good off the ball or you have to have a little bit of point guard skill um you know to kind of bend the defense off the dribble and Thomas had five assists last night so um when you're trying to project what his role might be obviously you know his defensive floor is going to determine some of where you can use him and how often uh, but if he can take on a little bit of playmaking role in addition to uh, the shooting even if it's you know attack a closeout and make the next pass I, I think that opens up uh, the wiggle room for for where you can fit him into the offense beyond just you know run off a screen and catch and shoot yeah my biggest takeaway and you know again you can't i don't know how much you can take from this i i was watching out of the corner of my eye because i was at chase center last night but i saw that they closed the half 
with that lineup that they used as a closing lineup in a, a lot in the Boston series, which yeah. was, I don't know whether you want to call OG Ananobi or Pascal Siakam the center, but that gets their probably five best players on the floor at this point. It helps Aaron Baines not have to play too many minutes as well. I'm sure there'll be times when, you know, if they're closing against Joel Embiid or something where they might go with a different group, but that to me seems like the unit that they're going to close a lot of games with and it looked like it went pretty well for them at the end of the half did they go to that first or did charlotte go to pj washington at center first uh, i forget the order that it was in but but that's um those last couple minutes of the second quarter have historically been uh, a spot that nick nurse either experiments with or tries to get an extra shooter on the floor in um so you know that was the jody meeks role in the championship year and last year they would throw matt thomas out there and you know people know about the two for one you you expand that out to like a four for three scenario and you get that extra shooter out there uh, and that extra possession maybe plays in your favor. Um, I think what we're going to see over these couple preseason games is they're definitely going to toy with Ananobi at, at center, whether that's the opponent, Charlotte or Miami going there first. Um, you know, Miami, I wouldn't be surprised if we see it um, pretty, pretty often if they treat that as a dress rehearsal because OG against BAM was uh, the Raptors' preferred lineup in their late-season meeting last year. Um, so, yeah, I think we're going to see some of that. And, you know, last night, obviously, um, Matt Thomas was in the, the Kyle Lowry spot because Lowry isn't in Charlotte for these two games. But I think we're going to see a, a fair amount of it. And, and I like Baines. I like Alex Len. But, um, you know, Chris Boucher, I don't think... I think he's going to be better off as kind of a 4-5 combo off the bench. And I don't know he's going to be reliable enough to close a lot of games. And I just think, you know, I don't want to go overboard with the like you got to close small but I think that their personnel really suits it like you said it gets your probably your five best players on the floor Ananobi is pretty stout defensively when he's shifted to center over the last year plus uh, his defensive rebounding rate comes up so even though he's not a you know an elite statistical rebounder in general a lot of that is because he defends on the perimeter a lot of the time and when he's gone closer to the basket defensively uh, the reboundings come along with it and then I just think you know the level of switchability you get there with, with OG and Siakam both kind of able to maybe not five positions but but they can kind of switch all over and Lowry and Van Bleet. Uh, um, you know, Nick Nurse is fond of saying they don't feel they're small when they have those two six-foot point guards on the floor together. So I think that that's probably going to be their best two-way look more often than not. And, and like you said, there are going to be Embiid games that maybe you don't want to use that. You know, uh, OG guarding Jokic uh, when both their centers were hurt last year was fun for a couple minutes, but I don't know if you want to ride that too, too long. Uh, but yeah, we're going to see that, man. I think I think uh, that's one of the more fun iterations the Raptors can roll out there, whether it's Powell as the three or you know or a thomas or a you know a bembry depending on the the game and the opponent and what's going on out there yeah man it is crazy to think that i've been working with helix sleep since 2015 and i think that's because my story with them seems to really resonate with listeners if you've never heard it before that was kind of the beginning of the direct-to-consumer boom and there was another very prominent mattress company at that time that was trying to convince you that mattresses were one size fits all they found the one formula the one mattress that was going to work for everyone my then girlfriend now wife and i ordered that mattress we ended up having to return it because hey guess what not everyone is the same 
And then she did some more research and found Helix Sleep. We took their sleep quiz and we found a mattress that actually worked for us and our body types. And uh, Helix offers 20 unique mattresses. Everybody sleeps differently. And Helix mattresses are designed for specific sleep positions and field preferences. Hot or cold, side sleeper, back sleeper. So take that Helix Sleep quiz, find your perfect mattress in under two minutes and it's shipped straight to your door free of charge it's no risk because you really need to sleep on the mattress in your own home you're like well how should i order this if i can't sleep like yeah you're not going to learn anything by going to the mattress store and sleeping on the mattress where do i take my shoes off do i leave my shoes on but then my feet kind of hang off the bed because i don't want to put my shoes on the bed and is it weird that i'm laying here for more than 30 seconds you can't tell anything under those circumstances you might as well just order it get it sent to your house get that 100 night trial they're 10 to 15 year warranty depending on the model and there's never been a better time to try a helix sleep mattress because they are offering 20 percent off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash capspace easy room slash capspace we talk about all the time here on the program that's helixsleep.com slash capspace this is their best offer yet i can attest to that since i've been working with them for nine years and it won't last long with helix better sleep starts now don't forget that slash capspace url to let them know that you came from us the other reason i i like that lineup uh is they can struggle in the half court at the end of games and obviously that is a very fast lineup this is a great transition team particularly in the regular season and so i think teams oftentimes just don't run enough at the end of games partly because they're tired and partly because like okay we got to slow it down we got to make sure we get a good shot and so the ability to run at the end of games is something that I, i think is uh is pretty important and just gets a little bit more spacing a little more versatility on the floor better chance of a mismatch as well better chance for if the the other team also has to go small better chance for those guards to get inside and finish without a big man contesting them where they can struggle at times so yeah i I think that's a a group that's going to be really good for them probably will be their best defensive lineup as well even if you do worry a little bit about the rim protection and the rebounding just because all of their centers really are are defensively limited in some ways uh so yeah i I like that group a a lot uh last last question before we get into more just uh overall how how'd my guy Paul Watson play last night. Oh man, uh, this is you. You've brought on. I, I think I'm number two in Paul Watson hive after Kelsey O'Brien, who covers uh, the 905 for for Raptors Republic and a few other places. Uh, but he looked good, man. He, uh, you know, he kind of fell into that zone of he came in in the third quarter and he wasn't like wildly impressive or anything. But then in the fourth quarter, when each team was playing their third unit, it was like this guy is too good to be playing out there in these minutes. And, and you know, that can be a a tough kind of quad a spot to fall into but i think it's encouraging for him he was everywhere defensively in the fourth quarter he had three blocks um he was kickstarting the transition game had a really fun kind of one-on-three transition layup a uh, couple assists he he looked you know his third quarter was a little spotty and, and i think that's going to be the challenge for him of you know you're coming from being the guy with the 905 and mostly playing garbage time so where do you fit in in you know a second unit that's going to have a starter or two maybe um you know that's the next challenge for him but i thought skill wise and kind of dominating the the garbage minutes he was great yeah how is his shot because that's a, when i have stand for him you know other people who saw him coming out of college are like that's the big question because he's clearly an nba athlete and finisher and has the tools at least defensively and so the shot is what people are concerned about i mean i i admit i 
barely watched him because I, you know, I, I fell in love with him uh, just doing uh, that NBA League Pass game on the, the Friday <laughs> on the last day of the bubble against the Raptors. With, yeah, that was when his 22-6-2 awesome. game or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I was obviously, I mean, I was very excited about his ability in transition, his athleticism. I think he shot it well in that game, but uh yeah what are the things that are really determined whether he can uh contribute at all this year uh, to the real team yeah that's that's the big one and it's why you know it's part of why he was kind of a a non-prospect coming out of fresno state like he shot 36 percent over his four years there which is you know on a moderate volume over four college seasons with no upward progression you kind of worry about that and then and then his first two years in the g league he didn't he didn't shoot a lot and part of that was like westchester just didn't didn't use um it was weird he he started most of the time but almost never touched the ball um so he hovered around like 35 36 percent on a low volume of threes as well uh, but last year with the 905 he was awesome he had 42 percent on over seven attempts per game uh and then when he came up to the raptors late in the year he was 10 of 19 um obviously these are small-ish samples his 905 sample was 215 threes um and we know that that takes a little while to stabilize and 19 threes in the nba is certainly not a large sample either uh but i think mechanically it doesn't look bad and maybe he's not a 42 percent three-point shooter but i think with his other tools uh his athleticism his size uh his ability to to get to the free throw line kind of attacking closeouts and stuff you know that probably only has to be a reliable like mid-high 30s shot for him not a 42 percent shot like i think he can he can contribute if he's a 37 38 percent guy um so obviously you know the list of guys in the g league who just need their three-point percentage to go up a little bit uh, as a swing skill is, is pretty long year to year but if uh you know 215 threes last year with the 905 is it's not a massive sample but it's certainly not a small one and especially since he was the guy by mid-season that uh, opposing teams were trying to stop and trying to run off the line a little bit so uh, a lot of encouraging growth there last year and i'm super excited for him that uh and for the league in general that two ways get so much more nba time this year and there are those extra um active roster spots night to night because i think you know he's the kind of guy that him and o'shea Brissett to some degree as well like you know do you grow a whole lot with another for paul watson like a fourth year in the g league does that do much for you i don't really know maybe maybe those odd bursts of five to eight minutes in nba games are uh you know what he needs as the next step in his development now all right well let's get into this team now and obviously they lost Marcus Ole and Serge Ibaka. Everyone knows that. Uh, but as we go back to thinking about wh- whether these guys can take another step, it, maybe I think taking some stock of what befell them in the Celtics series and also just what they were so good at during the regular season and then look into how the loss of Gasol and Ibaka is going to affect all, all of those things so just as a general proposition you know what were some of the things that were so good about this team what were some of the things that they struggled with and you know how might that change this year yeah I think you know the biggest struggle in the Boston series if you you know let's we'll we'll save the Gasol chat for for a little bit after this because he was um not himself in that Celtic series certainly um but the biggest thing that came up in the Celtic series and Boston deserves a lot of credit as a good defense but the Raptors half court offense just wasn't all that good last year and they like you said they were an elite transition team once again in the regular season they were a very good defense but when games grinded down to the half court um especially late you know they were a team that took a lot of late shot clock attempts and they were a team that struggled to put uh pressure on the rim so 
Pascal Siakam, who obviously took this massive jump in usage, and I would argue, you know, still in his first year as the guy, a 55.4 true shooting percentage on 28% usage is, uh, even if if that tailed the wrong way as the season went on, that's still a pretty good number for what was being expected of him. But in terms of the makeup of those shots, you know, he was getting to the rim much less, and he was, and that meant he was getting to the free throw line less. And, and I think that it's that kind of downturn in quote-unquote easier buckets for the Raptors half-court offense that that's most noticeable and that's honestly it's the biggest question entering this year again and you know we talked about that smaller potential closing lineup and you know you might have to close that way because Norman Powell is one of the only guys on the team that can really put pressure on the rim for you um, from a secondary role maybe OGN and Obi grows into that more Uh, you know you don't want to project a rookie like Malachi Flynn to be helping in closing time in his rookie season season. Um, so I still think that half court shot creation is the biggest question mark around them. Um, if you price in some improvement for Siakam, some improvement for OG Ananobi, you know, maybe Fred Van Vliet's not a bottom 10 uh, finisher at the rim this year, you know, maybe that stuff can kind of cobble together and you can get a little better there. But but most of my questions with them still lie in, you know, when you're playing a good defense and the game's close, how are you manufacturing uh, your half court buckets? And the team will hope that the addition of Chris Finch as a as a lead assistant also helps in that regard obviously he's got a great track record from houston new orleans and denver um excited to see you know some of the creative ways he might see to get pascal siakam attacking advantages instead of just here's the ball um you know we already saw last night a a little bit of um you know simple matt thomas action to kind of use his gravity a a little bit so um there are you know piecemeal ways they can get better in that regard but if you look purely skill set you know it's that half court advantage creation that is still not missing entirely but it it would be if you lined up all their strengths and weaknesses that's the biggest question mark still yeah and and we can hit on on a few others but to react to that I think this is a team that during the regular season they are so smart and they're intense and they play their guys a, a lot of minutes and so they really are able to take advantage of other teams defensive mistakes whether it's not getting back even after a make I mean these guys run will run it down your throat after a make even they're number one in the NBA in terms of percentage of uh, possessions that took place in transition and then uh you know things like you mentioned Van Fleet struggles finishing at the rim well he he still gets there a lot right like he'll mm-hmm. he'll gnash it under the basket and he and Lowry that when they drive they want to either draw fouls or they want to drive force help which you know might not necessarily be required and then kick it out to a, an open three-point shooter and so if you're really locked in which the Celtics were the Raptors actually like Van Vliet and Lowry I thought particularly Lowry at times did better finishing at the rim than they did during the regular season because it seemed like the Celtics were very dedicated to not overreacting to that penetration and giving up open threes but still that that led to you know just the lack of one-on-one creation so yeah in the regular season your opponent's playing a conventional pick and roll defense maybe you're not as locked in on the scouting report on those guys penetrating you can get stuff in transition you can force the other team's mistakes on the other end to get out in transition they're second in the nba enforcing turnovers it does look a little bit better than you know when you really go up against some of the best teams and they're locked in enough to force you to out talent them on the offensive end and that's where i thought this team fell a little short last year and 
a big part of that, of course, was the the struggles of Siakam. Yeah, for sure. And you know, you you made a good point about how the the point guards looked a little better when you know against an opponent that didn't have traditional rim protection, um, or, or maybe not traditional rim protection, but they they weren't worried about protecting the rim traditionally, and that you know opened some things up. But the cost was that Siakam struggled as he did, and, and I think you know I think it's it's obviously great that Kyle Lowry is aging as he is and can still give you you know 20 percent of his field goals at the rim and, and he still finishes pretty well there um and, and that he can take over some games a, as an attacker in the pick and roll uh having said that i don't know that it's the best thing for your offense to be relying on a, a 34 almost 35 year old point guard uh to be your biggest producer of scoring out of drive situations so um you know he definitely needs some help picking that slack up and i think i don't want to be reductive but i do think a lot of you know what the half court offense is going to look like and what the environment they build around Siakam is going to be is you know how much does Siakam improve and the team seems pretty optimistic about it uh, I didn't see a lot in the preseason opener like the pull-up three-point jumper above the break looked good but he wasn't you know crazy aggressive getting to the rim or anything like that and that's you know that's kind of a bellwether for him is that aggression um, on the drive or in semi-transition to get to the rim so uh, I think I don't look it, it sounds a little reductive but they gave Siakam a max extension and, and he hit all NBA second team so he, he got that 28% escalator and the, they got he, screwed on that by the way because he, he did not deserve to be a all NBA second team I guess I, I guess if you if you're really saying Anthony Davis is a center then maybe he should have been in contention but like no he is not one of the four best forwards in the NBA yeah I had him on my hypothetical third team I don't have a vote and like yeah. even that one was like you're coming down to picking two of him Tatum Butler and Middleton and it's like man I, I like I would really didn't expect like I had I had some of my cap prep stuff ready to go for the offseason had to rewrite because I thought for sure he was only getting the 25 percent um but regardless that's where they're at and so as as much as it might sound reductive at times you know at least for this year they're gonna go how Siakam goes because they're gonna give him 27 28 29 percent of the offensive possessions to uh you know see just how much he can grow in that role yeah and what's your thought on that I mean, I think it's fine. I think, you know, as far back as when the Raptors acquired Kawhi Leonard, I've kind of been trying to warn people that, you know, there's a legacy cost to going all in for a championship. And obviously, you know, a championship is is awesome. You should be able to stomach two years of kind of transition phase if it meant you got a ring. Uh, But that is where they're at right now. And it's uh, and at least uh, 22 other teams would love to have had the transition phase that the Raptors had last year. Exactly. And so, you know, some people wanted that transition phase to immediately be Sel, Gasol, Abaca, and Lowry. And I don't think that was realistic for a lot of reasons. Um, no. You know, one of them being that the Raptors believe winning and getting playoff experience are really good culture builders and player development tools. Um, you know, I'm sure they would tell you that Siakam going through those lumps against the Celtics is, uh, you know, a better learning opportunity than him sitting at home during that time. Um, so, you know, th- that, that, they were always going to have to transition a little bit. Now, you can quibble with, and I did, and, and I got some heat for this at the time. I didn't really see the need to max Siakam out before the season. Um, obviously, they didn't; they weren't intending to use their 2020 flexibility anyway. Um, but that's that's more of a philosophical about uh, when to time your your rookie scale extension versus RFA deals, uh, which OG Ananobi is now in that that awkward spot now uh, as well. Anyway, um, I'm okay with it. Like I, I think part of this transition phase, and maybe it's the leverage is now higher because. 
Siakam's taking up 28% of the cap and his salary is going to rise faster than the cap is. So, so that percentage is going to grow. Um, but I think it makes a lot of sense to have this year be, okay, Lowry's here to kind of lead these guys and, and usher them through. And the rest of the year is about finding out, you know, Flynn, Van Vliet, Ananobi, Siakam, exactly what is the most that they can take on and how best do they fit around if the Raptors do make a splash uh, in 2021 free agency. Um, you know, Giannis and Siakam, you'd have to figure out some fit stuff there, but but you really want to see just how high Van Vliet, Siakam, and Ananobi can get for you and with Van Vliet and Siakam you you've already paid for that now um so I think in a transition year you have even more incentive to uh shift some developmental you know say say you want to picture you know 10 percent 80 to 90 percent of the offense is what it is and then the rest is dictated by you know what are your goals and what are you trying to accomplish if you want to shift those more to the to the young or early peak guys if you want to call Van Vliet and Siakam uh, I think that makes a lot of sense because you know by this time next year you're going to hope that those are established guys and you're going to be adding pieces in free agency or in trade based around what these guys show you this year so this is kind of you know not obviously guys develop past 27 but for team building purposes this is kind of the last information gathering year for the raptors with, with siakam and van vliet I think. well and informa- information gathering here for potential free agents who might want to join the team yes as well. that that as well <laughs> how does so that that's hey, a reason to keep being good right i mean that's the with yes. the people who are like sell Lowry, sell Gasol. Okay, yeah. If you're gonna get two first round picks for Kyle Lowry, you know, making thirty million dollars a year, sure. If you're gonna get the number twenty seven pick from you know Philly or something to trade him away, then and you got to take bad salary back, then no, there isn't a reason to do that. You might as well just like win a bunch of games and be good. And yeah, you lost in the second round, but you got to a game seven and you know, you get to continue uh, having the best Raptor of all time on the team. Yeah. So like it, it, I mean, unless there wasn't this going to be this crazy return for Gasol, Ibaka and Lowry that I saw coming anywhere. I mean, to where you, it was going to be more than just like a late first rounder. Uh, if the, And if that wasn't available, then obviously it made sense to keep them. Yeah. Like I, I thought heading into last year, I think, you know, doing a, like a bold predictions column, I said, Lowry's going to stay and one of Ibaka or Gasol get flipped at the deadline. Just as a matter of, you know, I figured the Raptors knew it was kind of a transition-ish year and maybe there was a market for those guys. And then they kind of traded injured time back and forth. So there was never really an opportunity anyway. And I don't think Gasol would have had a market with the hamstring questions and everything. So um, it never played out that way, but I, I'm fine with it. Like, I think I think people can get bogged down a little too often in like losing that, losing this guy for for nothing to like that that type of mentality and it's not really true right like the Raptors got three and a half really good years out of Serge Ibaka including a championship season and how hungry are you and all that other good stuff and they got a year and a half out of Marc Gasol that contributed to a championship and if Kyle Lowry were to leave at the end of this season you know they got what nine really good years out of Kyle Lowry and literally the best Raptors career ever you're not losing those guys for nothing um especially like you said like Lowry's a a tough one this year because how do you make a deal for $30 million point guard work where you're getting enough assets back for it to be worthwhile and you're not eating up 2021 space with bad salary? It's just, it's really, even if you thought philosophically the move was to get something for Lowry, in practicality, it's really, really difficult to do that. 
Man, I just love American Giant. Just an amazing clothing company. I was reminded again of how much I love it when I drove from California to Montana over the All-Star break. And you know what it's like when you're on a long road trip and it's cold, particularly when it starts off warm in the Bay and then we get into some really cold areas. You're like, well, I don't want to wear like my jacket in the car, but then I get out to fill gas. I'm going to be freezing, but the American Giant hoodie was perfect because despite being made out of a nice, heavy material that'll keep you warm, it's not too hot as well. So I was able to wear it in the car, not be too hot, step out of the car, and still be warm enough when I was filling up gas or going into a restaurant or something that I didn't feel like I needed my jacket even when it was cold outside. These things are amazingly durable. I proposed to my wife wearing an American Giant hoodie in the Grand Canyon almost seven years ago. I still own that same hoodie. I still wear it constantly. And American Giant has since spread out into all sorts uh, of other types of clothing like their premium slub crew tee the no bs high-rise pant the slim roughneck pant featured in giant magazine issue two every american giant piece is made in america and designed to last no exceptions and it provides year-round comfort so find a closet staple for every part of your spring days at american-giant.com and get 20 percent off your first order when you use that finger code capspace at checkout easy remember we talk about capspace all the time here on the program that's 20 percent off your first order at american-giant.com don't forget that cap space code to let them know you came from us let's get into this team a little bit more here um and the news has been siakam he, he lost the joy for the game in the bubble that he's worked really hard that he's going to be better this year i mean i think largely their fortunes their chance of really competing to win the eastern conference i'm not sure if i see them as a true title threat but you know i, I think they're have as good a chance of being a, the best team in the east in the regular season as just about anybody and it really again comes to siakam taking a step forward and i mean this is now he's in the fifth year of his career every year of his career he's taken a ridiculous step forward that i think nobody thought that he could um you know maybe that was a little overhyped at the beginning of last year just because he was shooting it so well and that fell off but if that leap is coming that's going to vault pascal siakam into truly a top 15 or top 10 player in the nba as opposed to just making it on paper how does that happen yeah um you know you're you're right about the early season and it's almost this is almost the curse of siakam's development curve as someone who who covers him is that everyone has everyone's expectations around the raptors like like from a a readership or or you know raptors twitter standpoint or whatever is that this development has been so incredible and it's been mostly linear with with a few stumbling blocks that it should just keep growing and and like early last season siakam was in that 60-30 club of 30 percent usage and 60 percent true shooting that like harden and steph curry and kd occupy and that's about it um and it was like obviously this is going to come down to earth a little little bit um so you know i i'm i'm pretty comfortable with, with where he's at and where i think he could go this year you know i think similar to how we talked about the team's half court offense as a whole i think how siakam gets there is a little bit piecemeal and i i think you know if you're looking for an encouraging sign from his uh 2019 2020 season it's that his three-point percentage held up 
as he moved from the corners almost exclusively to above the break almost exclusively, and as his percentage of assisted threes dropped off pretty dramatically. 34% of his three-pointers last year were unassisted. And if he's going to have the ball in his hands at the top of the floor a lot, you know, that that is a really useful tool for him to have. Um, so I think that's your that's your encouraging thing. And now what you need him to figure out is, you know, the a better sense of when to use that weapon. And when is that, you know, when is that a, a good weapon to use? And when is that you settling? Because um, like I kind of mentioned before, the big drop off with him was, I mean, the, the biggest thing was the volume at the rim where he went from taking 40 plus percent of his field goal attempts at the rim to, to down in the 27 28 range uh and his finishing dropped off a little bit but he was still a pretty good finisher when he got there it was more that he shifted too many of his shots to this kind of floater range area and he was very ineffective in that range so um for him it's a little bit of you know can you now that you know how defenses are gearing up for you, can you get ready for that? And can you anticipate that and still get to the rim or um, still get to the free throw line, which is something that that dropped off uh, alongside his, his field goal percentage at the rim. And I don't mean all of this to say that Siakam's diet should entirely be uh, those threes above the break and shots at the rim. Obviously, if you're going to use 28% of possessions, that's the usage profile where an in-between game and some mid-range pull-up and, and some, some of that deeper elbow range um, floater or push shot stuff uh, even if those shots aren't the most efficient you need to have those in your bag because defenses are going to throw different things at you um, that part of his game needs to come along too but mostly it's you know so much of, of what made Siakam so good was that he's hard to keep from getting to the rim and, and if he slows up on trying to get there then that's that's a bit of an issue for the other parts of his game um, beyond that you know I, I would love to see him take a step forward as a playmaker and I think um, the early camp chatter from from Chris Finch and Nick Nurse is about getting Siakam involved in a lot of different ways and I thought Siakam as the handler and pick and roll was something the Raptors could have gotten more usage out of last year you know when he do that with Kyle Lowry or Fred Van Vliet late in games it was really hard to stop but they didn't go to it a lot Um, OG Ananobi has shown some ability to be the screener in those actions as well and that opens up you know Baines isn't a Marc Gasol passer but he's a very good screener and and can work the dribble handoff game Uh, so you've got some more dynamic ways to get Siakam involved rather than you know he did he wasn't Kawhi levels of, of here's the ball and, and go one-on-one but there was a little too much of that and I think I think they can get more creative in how he's attacking both for himself and, and to create advantages for others sorry that was a, a rambly answer but obviously uh you know I've, I've had a lot of time to think about Pascal Siakam's game yeah no I mean there, there's a lot of truth in what you're saying for sure and I think you know he's I agree with you on using him as the handler in pick and roll you know that's just easier to do than having him be the screener you know you can if the other team has a Kemba Walker style guy on there they're not necessarily going to want to switch on to him but then if if there is that switch he does have to be a little bit better I think at being that guy and kind of the way he drives uh you know he likes to go back to goal he likes those spin moves he's kind of got these like slithering drives I'd like to see him get stronger. I want to see more power moves from him where he's just like, you know, I'm going to just put your ass in the goal if you're going to put 
someone like Kemba Walker on me where he kind of because the way he has to do it he has to sort of go back and forth look for a way that he can kind of step around the guy and he's sort of going back and forth covering a lot of space and that allows guys to dig down on him as well without as many consequences and so I would like to see him just add some more power be stronger just say hey you're gonna you got a smaller guy than me I'm just gonna back this guy down to the basket and you know hopefully not get the charge obviously but uh and then as you mentioned you know the hook shot the floater game he doesn't really have like a straight up turnaround jumper necessarily either and and, you know he's got like a little bit of step back stuff but enough to where you know if it is getting the ball with six seconds on the shot clock he at least has something that he feels like he can go to to hit at a 40 percent type of clip uh because really yeah he's the guy who's gonna have the gravity against really good teams and so and i'm not sure whether he can get there or not you know the the three-pointer above the break is nice when you go under but to me somewhat similar to Giannis, a guy who i've compared him to for a long time as kind of a Giannis light where it's really more about just like can you go get a bucket yourself individually inside the arc at the end of games is the number one swing skill the three-pointer is nice but now that he's like the main guy i think it's really about uh his scoring ability so um anyone else you're looking at as like a big improvement possibility for this team yeah i don't know if it'll be at heavy volume necessarily but i think you know i uh going back to like late february when the raptors were so thinned out and you know it meant more guys were getting more opportunity and guys were getting bounced around positionally a lot i think ogn and obi started to show a lot more offensive skill wise and i think that carried over into the bubble and then in the preseason opener you know he had one drive going between his legs and he had a transition bucket where he went behind the back to free himself for a dunk i don't want to like overstate it because i don't think the raptors offense is going to you know shift where OG Ananobi is getting a ton of opportunity but he's a guy who's hovered around 14% usage in his career and, and most of that has been stand in the corner and knock down these open shots uh if he can grow a little bit I, th- I think you know obviously Siakam is the ceiling definer for this offense but if the fourth or fifth guy in those closing units and even the starting lineup uh can tick upwards as well I, I think that makes them a little tougher to defend and I think Ananobi has shown obviously he's shown a tremendous amount as this versatile defensive weapon uh both positionally and in terms of you know the the type of player he he's guarding role wise um but I think he can offer a little bit more than just catch and shoot offensively uh again not at huge volume but I would love to see what he looks like as a 17 17 and a half percent usage guy instead of a 14 14 and a half percent usage guy because I do think he has a little bit of ball skill you talk about a guy who's um strong and can kind of will his way in there um you know he's uh he's had good finishing at the rim he's 68 69 percent around the rim and he has this pretty nice attack a closeout out of the corner and, and drive kind of right into a post up and sometimes those those rim out he's a little you know it's not the smoothest of moves yet uh but i think he started showing a lot more on the skill side um as last year and the relaunch went along and it's you know again it's not you're not gonna put ananobi down for for 20 points a game coming from a a 10.6 average uh but i think 
you know, qualitatively, you're going to see more ways that Ananobi can get involved. And then I think in terms of how difficult are the Raptors uh, to guard, you know, we know that the break point in a playoff series, when it grinds down to those two good defenses in the half court, you know, is there a guy that Kemba Walker can hide on or, or a guy that, you know, say you you have an immobile center that you want to keep on for offensive purposes, you know, can you stick him on someone in the corner? And the less that your offense allows for that, the tougher you are to defend. And I think, um, you know, that's a, a big area to watch for the Raptors in terms of growth. And, and also because Ananobi is still, you know, if you're talking upside and development curve, you know, he's still only 23. There, there's a little bit of, a little bit of time to, to continue to develop him on the offensive end. Yeah, and he's the player type with the athleticism and size that we've seen kind of come out of nowhere and develop more skills because if you do develop those skills, he has the, the physical ability to make them matter. I'm actually going to be watching his potential improvement on defense. And I that may sound insane to some people because I've already anointed him the best isolation defender <laughs> in the NBA. But especially if they're going to go with these small lineups at the end of games, I think he needs to get better as a defensive playmaker off the ball. And he has the athleticism to do that. I mean, that 7-2 wingspan, huge standing reach, you know, weighs like 235, uh, very athletic. You know, he has the ability to make more help plays at the rim. And as you noted, that hasn't necessarily been his role as much. But now he may be asked to do more of that if, you know, he's going to be playing as a, whether you call him the power forward or the center in that lineup. But I, and I'd say the same about Siakam as well. Yeah, um, and, and yeah. like we saw some encouraging signs with that, um, again, preseason only, but like him and Van Vliet played 20 minutes together and they combined for seven steals. And I would say three or four of those were Van Vliet and OG converging on a guy with one of them on ball and one of them off ball. I think they have a good chemistry like that. And I think obviously, see Lowry and Siakam fit that um you know there's no reason with his tools and especially if he's not going to be you know the isolation defender quite as often because he's playing up a position or whatever you know there's no reason this guy can't average you know three steel plus blocks uh per game I don't think because he does have that kind of um disruption to him on that end yeah daily fantasy players take note it's uh, hey I know where the bread's buttered man I I I know how to work in the the stocks and and Chris Boucher's uh, per thirty sixes and stuff. I, I know that the people who tend to listen to um, the smarter podcasts like your own are doing that, looking for a return on their investment. So, <laughs> so let's uh, let's see here. I, I think that's probably it. Maybe for huge improvement candidates uh, this year, I will say as far as possible regression candidates. Norman Powell looked a little heavy to me last night, and he did not have a good game. I didn't watch that many of his minutes, but just seeing him, I was like, oh, he uh, he does not look like the cut athlete that we've seen. Did I hallucinate that, or did you agree? I mean, I, I didn't think he looked good. I don't know if it, it was heavier because he's anticipating playing up a position a little bit more this year. Um, just well, the it, Raptors... it, it, wasn't, it wasn't good weight, I'll say that. Yeah, uh, I, I thought we'll he see. looked I'll, a I'll little... get another look at him. Maybe, yeah. maybe it was just the lighting in uh, <laughs> the Hornets region, although, he... you know, see, he looked a little slow and like a couple of it like he had a bad game and a couple of his misses were ones where you know maybe he normally has a little bit more burst I agree with you that he's a regression candidate um you know obviously he's gonna have a a pretty similar role where he'll have 25 minutes as kind of the top scorer off the bench um but there's gonna be even more attention on him in those setups because one of the 
biggest things they'll miss with Ibaka outbound is Ibaka just absorbs so much of that second unit offense for them um, in a way that I don't know yeah. yet that Chris Boucher or, or Alex Len or whoever ends up in that role um, is going to be able to replicate and, and that could put more pressure on, on Powell. I also just don't, I, I'm not, I don't say this to be negative about him as a player overall, but I don't know that he is long-term like a 62, 63% true shooting guy. Like I, I do wonder if um, the larger sample of him being just 85% of what he was last year is more indicative than, than growth last year. Like he might've just had a really good season and uh, he's more of a, you know, he's just, he'll come back down to earth a, a little bit more is all. Yeah. 40% three point shooting. It seems like it, it might be a little bit much for him. He also just has kind of yo-yoed back and forth in his yeah. career as well, just as a general principle, though, I guess he put two good years together in a row these last two years. So maybe yeah, although he was he was borderline unplayable in both of those playoff runs. So I do there is still some concern on my end about the consistency there. And, um, you know, I think they need him to be their fifth best player this year. And I, you know, I, I don't I'm not 100 percent certain that's going to be the case is all I, I think I think the the bench scorer role is a, is a good role for him and a part time closer when they need the, the rim pressure. Um, I think that's a good spot for him. Um, Any other playoff or uh, playing time lineup issues that Nick Nurse is going to have to sort out in his rotation that we haven't hit on yet? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a couple questions. And Nick Nurse has talked a lot in camp about, um, you know, last year they had so many injuries and they started with such a small rotation because they had so many new pieces. And I think come playoff time, he still wasn't comfortable with like, who is the seventh man? Who is the eighth man? Who is the like... There was not a lot of role definition outside of their top seven guys. And I think that that's something that he wants a little bit more of. And I think that the two players that that applies to the most are Matt Thomas and Chris Boucher, where uh, I think they would like Thomas to be able to grow into a full-on rotation player rather than a specialist. Uh, And I think that there's... You know, especially if they stagger Lowry and Van Vliet more than they did last year, um, there's room to get him in as the two guard with a point guard alongside him a little bit more. Uh, Boucher's a, a bit more interesting of one because... They did pay him this offseason. Now that deal's overstated because the second year's fully non-guaranteed as a matter of making him a trade asset. Um, but Boucher's, Boucher's just such an interesting guy because he's like, every time he's on the floor, it's chaos and he's a high event player, good or bad. And I, think <laughs> that's, that's, I, I like that characterization. He's a high event player. Yeah, just stuff's going to happen when Chris <laughs> Boucher's on the floor. Um, you know, I, I I teased about the DFS stuff earlier, but like if you filter out the top 100 fantasy players from last year, um, so, so you know, you're looking at your, your value plays or your late draft guys, Boucher was one of the best per 36 multi-category contributors in the entire NBA. He just only played 13 minutes and sometimes it was 18 or 20 and sometimes it was two or three if he gets a more consistent role uh you know the numbers are going to be there but uh the the thing with boucher is you know the inconsistencies we talk about powell's inconsistencies like even in last night's game and and it's a preseason game and it's low stakes even then he was you know he had these two terrific blocks and after one he took a poor shot selection three that missed and then off the other he traveled and it's just like this is chris boucher when given uh real minute opportunity kind of in a in a nutshell um i am kind of high on him like i i do think he can be their kind of backup four slash five and i know obviously he does not have the um 
really he's more of a of a tall four than than he is a, a skinny five at this point. But I think a lot of the time he's going to be playing with uh, a Len or an Ananobi or a Siakam anyway, where defensively that doesn't matter as much. Um, I think his ability to be a weak side rim protector, uh, his ability in the transition game, and just his ability to make things happen around the rim uh, are such that he's going to have a consistent rotation spot at, at least to start the season. Um, so him and Thomas are the two guys that I think could take uh, a more consistent role compared to last year. Um, and then, you know, beyond that, the the kind of 8, 9, 10 spots in the rotation will be to use a long-time Raptors coach term. That those those could be fluid, as Dwayne <laughs> Casey and Nick Nurse have both been fond of saying. Well, yeah, let's, uh, let's dive into that a little bit. So I'm going to give you just, a, a, particularly on the wing, they have all these guys who you're really kind of wondering who, who are going to be guys who are going to play the most. I mean, it seems like they only really have one traditional backup point guard in Flynn. And, you know, I think he's going to get a chance at least to, to some degree. They probably don't want to play Lowry and Van Vliet as many minutes I ho- as they I did hope last so. year. I hope not. Um, particularly Especially with this. the condensed schedule. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so... I mean, think how much time they'll save by not having to go through customs, though. That's like <laughs> uh, anyone who's seen our YouTube videos knows that I don't wear formal stuff all the time. So when it's time to dress up rather than dress down, I highly recommend Inochino. They were the official outfitter of my wedding. I got my tux from there. All my groomsmen got their sport jackets from there as well. I felt really good about having them be the outfitter of my wedding because all my groomsmen were going to get stuff that they could continue to wear that fit them perfectly because when you go somewhere else, you're not going to get something that's made for you. So why not measure yourself in 10 minutes or visit a showroom rather than feeling like you're wearing somebody else's suit that they tried and failed to tailor for you. And not only does Indochino have the suits that made them famous, but now they've got everything. Blazers, pants, women's wear, outerwear, designed and made for you. Hundreds of high quality fabrics to choose from. European wools, linen, cottons, tons of colors, tons of patterns you can customize. Things like the lapel, the vents, the pockets. And you'll get a piece that is personalized for you in fit and style. Level up your game with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com. Use the code CAPSPACE. Use the CAPSPACE. We talk about all the time here on the program. You get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's 10% off at Indochino. I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O. Indochino.com. And don't forget that CAPSPACE code to let them know that you came from us. So I'll give you these names of guys on the wing. It sounds like you think Matt Thomas is going to be at the top of this group already. But uh, Thomas, Terrence Davis, Patrick McCaw, DeAndre Bembry, Stanley Johnson, Paul Watson, I guess O'Shea Brissett be in there too. Uh, Put those guys in order for me. I know that's a lot of names. I can restate (laughs) them if you want. Uh, But put those guys in order for me. uh, Who you think is going to play the most to who you think is going to play the least? Yeah, um, I'd probably put Thomas... First, um, I would probably have Terrence Davis first were his legal situation not hanging over everything where um, as an update, he had a court date on December 11th. His next court date is set for December 23rd. He's facing seven charges um, related Oof. to an incident with a um, a girlfriend uh, and an assault a series of, of assault charges uh, in New York. So we don't know the, the Raptors, um, Asai Ujiri and Nick Nurse and Bobby Webster have all answered our questions about this and basically said um, their due diligence has been such that they're comfortable having him around the team as the legal process and the NBA NBPA investigations play out. 
Um, based on precedent, the league hasn't been very consistent with this stuff. Um, but his court date being on the day of the Raptors opener, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, the league puts him on paid administrative leave while the final steps of their investigation play out. And then, you know, we know that if he pleads guilty, there'll be an, uh, a suspension. And even if he doesn't, um, well, he's, he's pled not guilty so far, but sorry, if he's found guilty then, um, and then even if he's not found guilty, you know, the league has, uh, issued punishment in the past for those incidents based on their own investigation. So, um, he's a pretty big question mark in that regard, uh, based on last year alone, if you were to assume he was available for 72 games, he's probably the top of that list. Um, but I know, you know, obviously there, there's a lot still to be figured out in, in that regard. And the Raptors as an organization have some, some thinking to do about where he fits uh, within their, their core values beyond just basketball. Um, so uh, of the other names, I would say Thomas is probably at the top. Uh, I would put Stanley Johnson at the bottom. And then, uh, yeah, he was yeah, awful last uh, night. I mean, he came in and missed four threes really quickly last night. Um, I think I'd probably, I, I know people are going to think McCaw's next because Nick Nurse has really liked Patrick McCaw. Uh, McCaw's a little behind right now following late season knee surgery. He's the only guy that entered camp at maybe not 100%. But I just think that like DeAndre Bembry does what they like from Patrick McCaw, but he does it a little better and he's a little bigger, which makes him a little more positionally versatile. So um, I would put Bembry up next in that list, I think. Uh, And then, you know, I know whose podcast I'm on. I'm going to put Paul Watson next up uh, ahead of Stanley (laughs) Johnson, um, because Watson does have that that fun kind of second unit offense changer. And and I like O'Shea Brissett as, as kind of an energy and rebounded defense guy. But I look at what that second unit's going to look like more often than not, and they need someone who can score. And I think that that of the options there is going to be Watson more so than, um, you know, an O'Shea Brissett or even a Yuta Watanabe who has an outside chance at making the roster and looked pretty solid last night. They just they have a lot of guys who can defend and play in transition and then, you know, everything would stop in the half court with those second units. And I, I think Watson is the... You know, other than Flynn, who who you talked about separately as kind of the backup point guard, um, you know, he's the in that group of wings. I think he gives you the most uh, offensively of the the options below Thomas. So I don't, I can't remember if I touched on everyone. I think I might have left out Jalen Harris, who's probably nine oh five bound anyway to start the year. So strengths and weaknesses, I think we we've hit on them all already. Uh, unless you, there's anything else that you really wanted to discuss. Um, we could probably get into predictions, but I'll, uh, if there's anything we miss, let me know. Yeah, I think the only other thing I might say is like um, we didn't we kind of gloss over the loss uh, of Gasol and Ibaka and the the shift to Aaron Baines, and I I think that that's something that maybe is going to be more felt in the playoffs than the regular season, just because Baines. Obviously, Baines is not the passer that Marcus Gasol is, but he's a bit more willing of a shooter um, and maybe a, a comparably effective shooter. And I just think like the transition should be fairly easy because you want to play Baines at both ends the same way that you were playing Gasol. Like, you know, you're going to do a bit of a, a conservative drop, um, to, you know, with the priority being rim deterrence and not having to send uh, a third guy in as aggressively. And then offensively, it's going to be a lot of, you know, dribble handoff stuff. But I think the one area that the Raptors might be able to make up some of that loss, and again, obviously Gasol's IQ and, and you know, the way he quarterbacks at both ends is that's going to be felt. It's a real loss and a, and a Baca's second unit scoring 
thing. Uh, but the one area that could be better is um, Baines and Len are both better drivers of defensive rebounding in recent years than Gasol and Ibaka have been. And the Raptors, their weaknesses as a defensive rebounding team have at least in part been because they play some zone and they are very aggressive closing out and they will keep some of their bigger guys near the perimeter. Uh, but I also think having those guys could, could help with the, you know, the defensive rebounding has been as good as their defense has been. That's been the one area where they lagged behind on defense in recent years. And I, I could see that ticking upward um, and maybe making up for a little bit of the loss in, you know, uh, effective field goal percentage suppression that, that they've had the last few years with uh, with Gasol and Ibaka around. You know, I think as I think about it, I don't know if it'll be a weakness, but this is a team that gave up a lot of threes last year, but they forced Ooh. turnovers and they never let people score at the rim. They were, I think, second best behind Milwaukee in that category, preventing scores at the rim, if not second best right up there at the top of the NBA. And that's how they had this really good defense. And so I think their rim protection is going to take a hit. I mean, Gasol, despite not being like a Skywalker, is a, a pretty good defender. I mean, it, Baines is 6'10 and Gasol is 7'1. Like Gasol is huge. He and his brother both, they both have like pretty long arms as well. And I think Gasol is actually a little bit more mobile than Baines even uh, as well. Um, you know, that those for his size, Gasol actually could move a little bit. And then Ibaka as well on the second unit, you know, Boucher probably does provide some of that a little bit. You know, Len to me is a little bit below average as a rim protector if he's going to be the second unit center at times. And Baines loves to take charges. They're going to do that. Kyle Lowry's going to do that. You know, they are, they're still going to like, crazily overhelp so i think that's an interesting question of like how much are they going to be giving up at the rim now both in terms of shots and the percentage my guess would be maybe they don't give up as many shots but that that when the teams do get there that they're able to shoot a little bit better of a percentage and then obviously the health of beans as well is a big concern just even in a 20 minute a game role how long yeah, stop taking charges in preseason games big fella <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, nah, he, uh, I mean, he just about killed LaMelo Ball early on. <laughs> and I was just like, oh man, like, this, do you really, do you have to just, do you at least wait till the regular season? Uh, but I mean, as I've said before, I mean, people, uh, the, the uh, combination of Suns fans and Baines fans really, uh, and Australian, some of the more passionate Twitter people, they were not happy when I noted that I, I thought the play that Baines uh, caused Steph Curry to break his hand on was ridiculous. But to be clear, I don't blame baines for that like the rules encourage him to do that like i blame the rule not him i don't think he's a dirty player i just think it's ridiculous that the rules encourage a 260 pound man to fall down when a guard hits him but uh <laughs> but i mean obviously he's found a way to be effective with that style it's just a question you know his ankle sprains knees hip back like he, he's definitely had a lot of issues uh over the years and you know there's a reason that he's kind of has been a backup so can he play more than 20 minutes a game and can he stay healthy through the season is a question because i think there is a pretty big downgrade from him to boucher slash len yeah and i don't know i i love the idea of those ananobi at center lineups for a few minutes a game and a few closing times but yeah that's um, like 10 know, minutes I, a game i don't need to see to ananobi playing 35 minutes on Jokic like i did last year like i just there's a there's a cap on how many of those minutes i need to see all right let's get into predictions then and but before we actually do our final record um 
I, as everyone knows who's been listening to these, I try to put teams into tiers on both offense and defense as part of this exercise. And let's talk about the offense first. I think they were 17th, 18th last year. Is, is that recollection uh, correct? 16th uh, if you take away garbage time per cleaning the glass. Okay. So I think there's a lot of teams that have gotten better offensively. Now, of course, some of those will regress uh, in terms of just injuries or not being as good as we thought. But I, I think that they are going to be significantly below the league medium i have them in a tier between 18th and 21st with san antonio new orleans and indiana and you know if you really go through it i think that pretty much there's a pretty good argument that the teams above them like you know minnesota maybe golden state would be one that'd be kind of similar to toronto but washington philly atlanta phoenix that's my 12 through 17 uh in reverse order and i don't see toronto being necessarily as good as those teams um now a lot of those teams are new they haven't proven it philly you might argue with but philly actually was 11th in offense last year and they're you'd think they would be better this year um but i think just the overall uh rising tide of the league offensively um you know and i don't know that toronto got significantly better offensively as you mentioned i think they're going to miss ibaka's scoring uh, on the second unit in particular so is that about how you see their offense or you believe i'm underselling them no i i think i'd probably have them a, a shade below league average or league median as well and, and i don't want to you know dig in too much to they're going to be the same you know across the board as last year but i do sure. think they they profile fairly similarly and and i don't know if you know you look at small say say you price in a little bit of improvement for van vliet and siakam and ananobi and then maybe lowry can do a little bit less for you powell regresses a little bit and you miss kind of a baka and gasol um you know we went through their second unit and so many of those guys are, are defense first guys that unless you really think malachi flynn is gonna run with full-time rotation minutes which would be awesome um i'm not ruling it out i think flynn is really polished i'm really excited about him um or you see matt thomas you know really being like a 10 point a game guy off the bench i think the second unit's going to struggle uh to score a lot of the time and we've seen you know we've seen over the last two years that even having an elite transition game and a defense that forces a lot of turnovers um that that that's enough to to provide an offensive floor where you can get to maybe average ish Uh, But in the half court, I I still think they're going to struggle a little bit. And I still think, um, yeah, I think they're going to be a shade below average or, or below median in that regard. Yeah, and you could throw in just the amount of threes and the amount of shooting that they have uh, as well in the backcourt. I mean, Lowry and Van Vliet obviously are, are two really good players. And when you play essentially two point guards together, yes, neither of them are incredibly dynamic on their own. But the ability to have those two ball handlers to have multiple angles of attack, you've got Siakam as well doing that. And then the, the guy who's off the ball can shoot it. They're going to get up a lot of threes. So I agree with you. I think they do have a pretty high floor as an offense and then defensively i still project them to be top five maybe not as amazing as last year particularly if baines is going to struggle to stay healthy particularly if they're going to play lowry and van fleet fewer minutes those guys of course everyone knows are wonderful defensive players as well um i don't see i the overall league i don't see like a great defense this year the way i saw milwaukee last year i think they're going to take a step back as well so i think the overall level of defense in concert with some of the offenses getting better i think is going to be a little bit lower but i still have it in the top tier with milwaukee the lakers boston and the clippers 
Yeah, I'm with you there. I think uh, you know they're the one concern on their on their defense, other than um, the rim protection, like you said, is uh, does the volume of corner threes they give up catch up with them at some point and this is something Seth Partnow and I have gone back and forth with a little bit um is you know this is two years in a row that the Raptors have really or I shouldn't shouldn't frame it actively like that um that Raptors opponents have shot really poorly on threes even though the Raptors are willing to give up um some otherwise good looks and I, I've dove into the numbers and there isn't a ton of you know shooter selection bias where they're only giving up shots to bad shooters and and, um, you know, obviously, NBA tracking data doesn't do the best, doesn't give us the best indication of openness because it goes by center of mass, I think, instead of, you know, is Chris Boucher's skinny arm up in your face uh, closing out rapidly or whatever. Um, but I think anytime you're giving up the most corner threes in league history, you have to worry about a little bit of uh, positive shooting regression for opponents. Uh, but I think, you know, you you factor those things in and you look at what they do well. And I think they just, they force so many turnovers they're very, very smart with their holdover players. And even some of, um, you know, that's obviously been the focus of camp to, to bring along guys like Baines and Bembry. And it's a little tougher for the bigs, especially in semi-transition to, to pick things up. Um, but I think they're going to be, you know, there's some institutional knowledge there. There's some some carryover. Um, the fact that they're returning four starters from a unit that was one of the best defensive units in basketball. And then you've got three, maybe four guys who could sniff all defense votes if they stay healthy in Lowry, Van Vliet, Siakam, and Ananobi. And then Ananobi, a guy who I think both of us think could become, you know, really something special on the defensive end if he's not there already. I think they just have so many things working in their favor that I'd be pretty surprised if they slid out of the top five defensively. They're just so much would have to go wrong with the center position and their identity is this kind of chaos creation defensive engine that, uh, you know, it would it would be pretty surprising if they weren't one of the better defensive teams in the league. Yeah, and so I think... To give you a, a little bit more here, I, I agree with you on that. I think that their defense is really going to be the variable. They they could be the number one defense this year. If they, if that's the case, then you know they're riding contention for the number one seed. If they're fourth or fifth, then you know they're kind of more just a solid playoff team. So give you some stats on them. A, a year ago, they projected to be a 60 win team over the course of 82 games uh however they were one of the luckier teams in the nba i'm sure you could say that the genius of nick nurse was <laughs> a part of that uh, but generally those don't tend to correlate from year to year uh they had the point differential of a 55.5 win team per cleaning the glass so they're uh, i think that's kind of my baseline for trying to decide how the the departures and the aging uh or the improvement as the case may be are going to affect them I do think they're going to be a little bit worse than last year. I do think that they are going to play Lowry and Van Vliet last. We haven't talked about Lowry as a regression candidate. He is 34, so you would expect there's going to be at least some incremental reduction there. They were also out. Well, I guess Siakam had as. Or was that two years ago that he had like a significant injury? He had like a groin injury. No, he, last he missed year, right? 10 or 11 games last year. Yeah. Okay. But I think relatively, you know, Lowry and Van Vliet didn't miss any time basically at all last year. And those those are the guys who are probably most irreplaceable for this group. I know both Ibaka and Gasol suffered from some injuries. Um, but they managed they managed to get a lot of these guys. These coaching staff is great. They've got continuity, which I think is going to be big. I think they're going to really... Uh, some of what we've seen in in the preseason yeah it's only one preseason game but from these teams that didn't make the bubble or are just coming together as totally new teams like they don't look very good and i think toronto 
they're they know exactly what they want to do on both ends and you know someone like Baines is smart enough to fit in seamlessly so you know I think they are still going to be able to beat up on the bad teams although I don't think they're by the end of the year there won't be as many bad teams maybe there will be at the beginning of the year so uh I could see them taking maybe a three game step back from where they were last year um and being a, a 52 win team over the course of the regular season uh 82 games so that would put them at 46 wins during the regular season huh i hate i hate when this happens that's the exact number that i had uh, yes. written down for them as well um you know it puts you 52 53 win pace uh for the full regular season um i i went back and forth on a little bit because you just laid it out right like they overperformed by pythag last year but they also dealt with all these injuries but they also you know maybe you have to price in some some shooting re- uh positive shooting regression for their opponents and you can just like go back and forth like that all day i just i worry about them being able to score in the half court and i worry about you know really how the offense looks if one of the the key pieces um you know one of their kind of top three offensive players were to to miss any time um and then i'm with you i i do think it'll make a lot of sense to you know lowry and van vleet should not be playing 36 minutes a game in a, in a condensed schedule even if they never practice for the entire season which seems likely um so yeah i think i don't know but i i am i don't want to say that i am picking 46 wins as a you know a stance of negativity because i do think there's a lot to be excited about with um siakam and og and malachi flynn and a couple of the other guys i just think it's uh it's hard to win a, a ton of games with an average to below average half court offense and i think you know the other thing if we're looking at eastern conference teams too is the schedule is a little less or i guess a little more balanced this year where you're playing each east team three times and each west team two times and not getting those extra you know that fourth game against some of your conference opponents so i could see the east as a whole just being uh you know the west is a little deeper even if the east is just as interesting up top so anyway a long way of saying i agree with you nate uh which is uh you know generally i hope to be within two or three wins of you when i come on because that that gives me a good indication that i'm <laughs> i'm on the right track and no one can be mad at us because we're both way ahead of the vegas over under so yeah i've i've fastidiously not looked at that i guess i'm gonna have to pretty soon because we've only got a week left to do our over unders podcast um yeah just for reference last year you and i uh both i had 46 you had 47 which obviously was way low although the year <laughs> before i did have them winning the eastern conference uh with the, the Kawhi season um, I had them losing to the Celtics in seven in the second round last year. So while the win total, <laughs> oh, wow. while the win total was way underneath the un, the underlying feel for <laughs> what level the Raptors would be at was right on. I remember getting grief from people for saying that they they'd lose in seven in the second round in the two three matchup. So uh, you know th- this is the thing with win total predictions, right? Is like they're gonna fluctuate all over the place, but as long as we hit the key story notes. You know, it should give us a good a good idea for the uh, for the playoffs. Well, and I think as far as their ultimate playoff destiny here, you know, really, I think that's really more of a question of what the other teams are. Like, what is Milwaukee? uh, Can they get some more depth? Does that work out? Uh, Brooklyn, obviously, is just a massive question mark. But I think, you know, they are clearly more talented than the Raptors if Kyrie is healthy and KD, KD, KD. Wow, I said (laughs) it like that that guy from the uh, commercial back when he was on the Thunder like uh, seven years ago. Uh, But you know if he's back to the same guy miami was 
awesome last year in the bubble can they continue to do that you know so indiana has a lot of question marks uh philly is going to be a totally different team this year like this is really boston how's the loss of hayward going to affect them this is really the team that is the most stable of all these east teams i have feel like i have the best read on them of any of them and so i don't know which of the teams is going to be better than the raptors this year i think it's going to be someone i think some of these teams have more upside and more variability so you know i kind of see the raptors i don't know who's going to be above them other than maybe milwaukee for sure and maybe nobody but i think in the playoffs they could run into some of the same issues that they had so i think a second round exit is probably i'm not going to say who it's to and in how many games because you know i don't have that level of clairvoyance uh, unlike you but uh (laughs) Uh, I, I think a, a second round, a competitive second round loss is what I expect from them again this year. Yeah, and I think, you know, if you look at where they were when Kawhi Leonard decided to leave in the kind of afterglow of a championship, consecutive years where you make the second round of the playoffs and you're developing guys and, and you're kind of stabilizing that winning foundation, you know, that's a pretty good outcome, assuming 2021 goes the way that you're hoping it goes. Now, if you strike out and this is, you know, you, you're you locked in into a second round future indefinitely that's a little different but as a as a two-year transition phase i think they're they've handled it pretty well and will continue to um and the thing about the raptors too is that obviously i'm a little a little biased covering them day to day but they always find ways to be like unexpectedly fun whether it's you know hey they're starting these completely unconventional lineups because everyone's hurt or they're going on this massive you know they're 17 and 5 when Kawhi sits or, or they, they find ways to be a lot of fun every year and i I think I don't think this will be any different like when when Matt Thomas has like a 10-3 game or something like that all right well this has been awesome thanks so much uh, for coming on and where can we keep up with your work throughout the season yeah you can find me at the athletic um that's where all my my Raptors writing goes um Eric Kareen and I have a podcast there called the Raptors Reasonablists as well um and then yeah on Twitter at Blake Murphy ODC All right, well, we'll look forward to having you on uh, after uh, Paul Watson gets his first double-figure scoring game. Oh, so uh... so soon then. (laughs) All right, thanks again, Blake. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, man. That was great. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. All right. Fresh off seeing NBA basketball in person last <laughs> night. The Golden State Warriors versus the Denver Nuggets. We are joined by Adam Maris. And let's uh, let's fill everyone in on what you're doing here before we get into the, the meat of the show. What what I'm doing with DNVR or is, yeah everything DNVR locked on <laughs> locked on nuggets still exists too right so, absolutely so I'm podcasting every day of the week basically right now locked on nuggets Monday through Friday and then DNVR nuggets also has a podcast we've got YouTube we got videos you know doing a bunch of different stuff we're kind of Denver's a little bit of an island you know in the middle of the country and we we try to cover them um, you know in just kind of a unique way so every every Denver sports we're over at DNVR we got cool stuff going on um, including I. I I think I don't know how much you've seen of our stuff, but 
but it, I, I think it's kind of unique. It's like its own little genre of, of sports coverage, I think. Well, I think the last time we talked, you had like just opened uh, the, <laughs> the bar yeah. downtown. Because I think, I think we talked actually during the hiatus. And, yeah. um, you know, yeah, because I was going to be like, oh, I'll go through and do like a bunch of... Uh, <laughs> a bunch of like season reviews for teams and i was like you know what let's either let's uh, how would i do a covid podcast five days a week <laughs> i know I, I know uh, it, it's man. wild man it has been it has been really strange and yeah as you mentioned we opened up a bar on march 13th and of course the it's a sports bar and of course the nba stopped on march 11th so we opened without any sports and then two days later closed down and it's been weird i mean we still have the bar it's still there so it just we have yet to open eight nine ten months later whatever it's been yeah, the, the uh, I'm looking forward to checking out some of your YouTube stuff. You said you're you're doing stuff on YouTube for like every yeah. Nuggets player before the season, so that's uh, yeah. so I think I assume you watched the game last night. Any just like quick takeaways? Obviously, for a team that went deep into the playoffs, that they weren't you know trying absolutely as hard as they could. Although you know we still got the frustrated Mike Malone timeouts after a right. couple of fast break buckets. Like that was still there. He was still uh, still trying to set the tone. But anything that stood out to you either at the top or the bottom of the roster last night? I think the two things that really jumped out to me was one, Jokic has been on this body transformation that spans about ex- almost exactly one year. I have a theory that it all began on December 4th of 2019 when shortly after getting just um, destroyed by Anthony Davis. Um yeah. He started well, 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 the transformation uh, started beginning with the 2019 offseason in the wrong direction. Well, sure. And then, sure. And then he, yeah. so it began then, and yeah. then he was, he's been clawing that back and then some since then. Oh, I, and I just think, so seeing him, I and I had seen some pictures of him and, and obviously seen him on the video Zooms that with the media availability, and he looked great, but I wanted to see him out in uniform and actually live. And I just thought he looks as thin and just, he has some pep in his step. And I don't know if that's enthusiasm. I don't know if that's because he's lighter and just moving better than than ever but he just looks to me as spry as i've ever seen um whether that's good or bad i think it's almost certainly good he seems sure seems to think it's good but he just looks to me as good as he's ever been so that's number one and then number two well well just to to react to that real quickly um even before the game like just seeing him he was just like you're right like he was just bouncing around he was like running all these sprints before the game like (laughs) look like running fast like you don't really see nicole yoka's just like sprint in a straight line very often and you know he just was, was really and just that little bit of quickness that he added in the yeah. bubble and i think he's added even more and he was ridiculous last night he was nine for 11 obviously you know kevon looney and marquis chris aren't going right. to stop him and the warriors weren't double teaming that much but still like he was just absolutely ridiculous uh against a good what looked like a pretty good defensive team frankly uh for the rest of the game other than with him so i i i'll second that i think he looks awesome and but it's, yeah, it's also the pep in his step though and i know that's yeah. kind of a it's a phrase but i don't you know Jokic. one of the storylines with him over the last three or three seasons really is that he's arrived almost like depressed it seems you know overweight doesn't look like he wants to be there and then huh. um six weeks of the season go by and then all of a sudden he starts trying and if you look at his stats in you know october and november over the last few years they're just not great and then sometime in december he starts to turn it on and then he's ready to go he's kind of in a, in a lot of ways a throwback big man like that right eases himself into the season and that's why when i see him come into camp 
at what I think is probably his skinniest weight or his most slimmed down weight I've ever seen him. And I see him doing those things that you're talking about, just a little bit extra, like he's putting a little bit extra into it. I, it's Again, this is just my theory, you know, but I, I think that something has clicked in him over the last 12 months that has just sort of invigorated his drive. And I think he's been always been more motivated than people realize. But when I saw him, you know, in the, in the, the workouts and, I, and talking to different people, it just looks like he has a little bit extra motivation this year, which is something I at least put that as a file away and let's keep an eye on it kind of thing. Yeah, well, uh, you you were going to say something about your theory that like December 4th of 2019 when he got uh, beat up by (laughs) Anthony Davis, like kind of changed things for him. I, so Jokic last year was kind of funny in October and November. If you remember, he had like four game-winning shots, and he was averaging like 13 points per game. Like the numbers were all bad. He he looked like he was yeah. you know just not motivated and just looked it, kind of he, sad out I there. I think he was my most disappointing player for the first month of the season. And, and it was funny because he probably was, and yet he had all these game winners and he had all these like 15 point fourth quarters. So it was like he was not trying, and then he just happened to have all these awesome moments. But that Anthony Davis game, the Laker game, it was a bad Back and forth game, great battle. And it looked like, okay, Jokic isn't trying, and now fourth quarter he's going to try. And Anthony Davis blocked his shot three or four times and it just kind of took him took him to school. And I think it was maybe a little bit of a, okay, it's time. I got to, you know, I got to start. I got to go through this guy. Clearly this is going to be a team we're going to match up with. And he started working out after games. He lost a ton of weight. And uh, again, it's just my theory, but it was that exact game that he started doing these post-game workouts and started slimming down. And a month later, he was... Was playing some of his best basketball of his career so um I, it could be one of those things where he felt like oh Joel Embiid I'm out of shape I'm unmotivated 17 point fourth quarter you know Carl Anthony Towns game winner right in his face maybe it's one of those things where he just didn't feel that Anthony goes up against Anthony Davis and thinks oh wow this guy can stop me even when I'm going full you know as hard as I can so um 12 months later and he looks as good as I've ever seen him so that file that away for whatever it's worth file it away that Jokic to me looks really really good um noticeably good and then the other thing was Facundo Campazzo, who maybe you have more insight. I'm still learning all about this guy, but he's a guy that the Nuggets have been behind the scenes raving about. Michael Malone has been raving about, you know, publicly every chance he gets. It was a little bit of a confusing addition, I think, for Denver, just because you didn't look at if you were going into the offseason, you didn't think they need another point guard, especially a, an undersized one. But watching him play and just seeing sort of the impact he had, both as sort of like, um, you know, he just plays so hard, and I think it was infectious. And then also, you know, he just brings some things to the table that the Nuggets have not had uh, in the Jokic era, it's at least got me thinking, okay, I'm interested. This is one of the main storylines for the Nuggets this year. Is he really an impact player? And what effect does he have on the rest of the roster? Not just, you know, what skills does he bring, but how does it affect everybody else on the team? I I joked that his welcome to the NBA moment was when he took a charge on Brad Wanamaker (laughs) and then got it overturned by review. But fear not, because he drew two more offensive fouls in like the next three minutes of the game. So he, if you haven't seen this guy and... You know, going back to when he first really was on the scene that I can remember, I want to say it was 2012, an exhibition against Team USA playing for the Argentine national team. And he was like getting into it with all these guys. And I'm like, who is this guy? This guy is terrible. You know, he's like, I mean, he's listed at 5'11", which is uh, yeah. not true. Um, in, in boots, maybe, yeah. Well, I mean, technically, they're supposed to 
supposed to be like actually measuring these dudes. I don't know if they actually if they did that this year or not, but uh, he's a small five eleven. I guess we can say. Yeah, I, I mean, if you put him next to like someone like Monte Morris, he looked like he was like five inches shorter than Monte Morris. Yeah. But but in any event, I mean, he's just an absolute spark plug of a guard. Maybe the most energetic, you know, energetic player that I can remember going back to someone like Daryl Armstrong, right? For the Magic, I mean, this guy is absolutely insane. His ball pressure uh, just annoys people and. He's a wonderful passer as well. He's got a lot of flair with that. Uh, excellent pick and roll player. I mean, he's tiny, obviously. Yeah. Um, you know, his shooting, some people I've talked to have not been high on. He looked like he was willing to take shots. You know, is he yeah. going to take an off-the-bounce three in the pick and roll? You know, maybe not. Uh, and, you know, he's not as good of a finisher as someone like J.J. Barea, for example, at his size. But J.J. is like an all-time finisher for a little guard. So no slight yeah. in that. But... I think he's absolutely an NBA quality backup point guard, and I don't know what it's going to look like for him in the playoffs. Right, but right. I mean, he's also you know a very active help defender, and he just incredibly smart and plays incredibly hard and has really good vision, and uh, and he's just tough as shit. Like I mean, he's gonna he really is I, tough. Yeah, yeah. I just enjoyed every moment that he was on the floor. It was great. He was certainly fun. I think he's gonna be like a, a love or hate player. I mean, same similar as a Della Vadova or a JJ Barea. I mean, if he's on your team, you're probably rooting for all those annoying little things he does, drawing fouls and you know a little flopping or just getting under people's uh skin and if he's not on your you know if he is on your team you love it if he's not you hate it um but def- here's the interesting thing about him because i think he's known as the passer right the mixtape you you see those are all the passing highlights but every european player that's asked about him including i think luka Doncic had the most notable one the first thing he says is i hate playing against that guy because he's such a pest on defense so i wonder if his impact is actually more or at least as much defensively as it is anything else and to your point that's the big question that's going to hang over the entire season is is that a regular season phenomenon or postseason one but i do think in the regular season it's going to bring a, a some value to denver yeah, and I think the idea of him playing together with Monte Morris on backup units, you, on those backup units, you can get away with playing two point guards together. There isn't some two on the other team that's going to bludgeon you. And, and he does right. punch above his weight as a help defender, taking charges, etc. Um, so uh, let's uh, talk about some of the new additions here just to... Take stock of it. Jeremy Grant is now in Detroit where he will be shooting one for 11 on (laughs) off-the-bounce pick-and-roll jumpers every game. Uh, They offered him three years, $20 million a year. Supposedly, that was something that Denver was willing to match, but Grant wanted to leave. I don't know if I buy that they actually were going to match that or not. I think it was probably a good decision not to, frankly. Uh, Mason Plumlee, also gone, also on a contract that I would not have matched. Uh, Sorry, were you going to say something about the Grant thing? Well, I'm more curious just what you think, because I've I've given a bunch of my opinions and I'm really close to it, but I'm I'm curious what an outsider's perspective is on his loss. Obviously, throw out the contract for a bit, because I agree with you. That contract just doesn't make sense. But what, what do you think? How much do you think this hurts Denver losing him? We're not going to find out until the playoffs, I don't think, uh, yeah. because Will Barton uh, hopefully will be back. He didn't play last mm. night, but he, he was running around trying to get back into shape. You know, hopefully he'll be ready to go with this nebulous knee injury that he had. Uh, you know, and Grant was a, a backup for them last year. He didn't play that larger right. role, and when he did play that role, he played a, as a backup four. What was such a revelation about him in the bubble, and I think that got him paid, was the fact that he held up pretty well guarding Kawhi Leonard. And he held up even reasonably well guarding LeBron James. And there are not that many players in the league who can do that and also still do something offensively 
which he can. Right. Is he guarding those guys at that high of a level that you would want to pay him right. twenty million for a team that you know is somewhat taxed in terms of their resources? Uh, you know, that's a, that's a tough question, right? I mean, fifteen million dollars a year, I probably would have gone there, but it's uh we we may not find out until they play the clippers or the lakers frankly how much they're going to miss him and you know they don't have necessarily another great option to do that one specific role but other than that one specific role i do not believe that they will particularly miss him i think i i think i agree with all of that um i i do wonder even if his some of his defensive effectiveness against a, a Kawhi was a little bit overstated i mean Kawhi was having a very good series up until the very end i mean him and paul george yeah. both kind of wilted at the end and i don't i think jeremy grant did a very good job in a lot of ways but i don't i, I i'm more curious if that had more to do with whatever was going on with the clippers and less yeah. with what whatever denver was doing but. Uh, and some of his like iso post-ups you know yeah. they were double teaming you know that was part of it but it, certainly by the end of that series i didn't think Kawhi was getting the type of looks in the mid-range that he was used to but again that could have been fatigue related more than it was jeremy yeah. grant related uh, and the drop off between grant and whoever it is i mean the, that's one of the questions now is who do you throw at if you have a wing that's kind of punishing you who do you throw at him right now and i think for denver that's probably the biggest the biggest obvious flaw in their roster yeah, and that's something they still have plenty of trade assets uh, as well. Right. But also, I mean, part of why I think Grant is gone uh, is because they wanted to elevate Michael Porter Jr. into a larger role. And no, I don't think that Porter can guard those guys. Maybe he could someday. In theory, he has the physical tools, but certainly has not developed that mentality. And Paul Millsap, at age 35, you're asking a lot for him. And Millsap is probably not as good of an offensive player as Grant was last year as a shooter or or finisher or transition guy. So, um, you know, they did get Millsap back, which I think was important after they lost Grant. Right. But I'm... uh, yeah, we'll see. I I don't know that this team is totally complete yet either. Yeah, I think they I think they also feel that way that there's some flexibility. We'll see how things break and then add a piece for the playoff run. Uh, well, Bull Bull is going to play some three for them, so maybe he could he could. Pick. <laughs> Um, so you're saying yeah. that sarcastically, but I mean, there's still it's still on the table. I know last this last game he played, I think six minutes, the fewest of anybody. But uh, you know, I I wouldn't say that I I, I hear confidence that that is a, a, an option this year. But I do think it's something that we're going to see a little, at least a little bit of. There'll be an opportunity for him to play some three and four. So whatever you no. think of that, yeah, no, I mean, for, from uh, the conversa- conversation that I had with someone in the organization, that seems like it's more of the plan for them. Yeah. For I mean, he can at least shoot it at, at that level. But yeah, it's uh, he he's. Still Still a, a work in progress, to be sure. So, you know, we talked about Jokic as a possibility to get a lot better. I mean, that was that was the biggest question that I had about this team. More than any of the changes was just, is Nikola Jokic going to be as good as he was in the bubble and perhaps even going to be able to take another step? Early returns on that looking pretty good to me. The other question is, is Jamal Murray going to be the same guy that we saw in the bubble? And what are your opinions on that? Well, I don't know that if he's the same guy we saw in the bubble, I think he's a little bit better than Steph Curry's peak. Um, I think he was 55% from three on volume. So probably not um, going to to be able to replicate that. What I am curious with Jamal, you know, he's gotten better every single year and then took a huge leap, obviously, inside the bubble at just reading the court and finding where to take shots. One of the things you look at is just that he's averaged, I think, five and a half three-point attempts for each of the last three seasons, two two or three seasons, right, right around there. And inside the bubble, he was just taking a lot more. And I think a lot of that was just him identifying it. I've done a lot of sort of film work on this about how many, 
off the dribble, off the bounce, three-point shots he gives up because he just either not seeing it or he's thinking attack. And I thought in the bubble, he just identified those a lot better and then knocked and then converted them. So I think he's going to be better in that regard. Um, I think giving him a little bit more space, one of the things that I think is going to happen now with just how the roster is constructed is I think Denver's going to play a lot of two and three-point guard lineups, a play a little bit smaller, not as one of their main offenses, but I just think it's going to be sprinkled in. Um, and, and I think that's going to benefit him quite a bit. So I do think he's in line to have his best year, but replicating the bubble for any of those guys, Donovan Mitchell, any of these guards that just shot lights out, you can't expect them to continue that rate. But I do think it's going to be, I, I do fully expect Jamal Murray to have a, a career year this year. I mean, he's 23. You would expect that anyway. Yeah. I mean, in the playoffs last year on a per game basis, Murray shot seven threes a game and he made 45% of them. And Utah, I think, was the perfect team for him to get some confidence against because they just didn't yeah. have anybody who could guard him off the pick and roll. And they were going to have Rudy Gobert lay back. And so he just had all kinds of space to go to work. And whether it was getting wide open into the mid range, whether it was shooting that three off the bounce, and then, you know, they, he really just started even ISOing against yeah. those guys, which he yeah. hadn't seen a lot of either. And just was able, against that team, was able to get to any shot that he wanted and he was knocking it down as well so he had a bit of a body transformation as well heading into the yeah. bubble and it one of the things I, I i the opposite with Jokic, where i feel like Jokic looks even better now than he did going into the bubble i think murray kind of looks more like what he used you know kind of what we've come to expect but going into the bubble to me murray looked big he said he had added i think he said something like eight pounds or something like that which for his a guy his size that's a meaningful amount but he uh he looked. He was just so strong, and I think that strength played a part of it too. You think about some of those moves attacking the basket. He had that dunk on Paul George. He had some big time, like just strength moves. And so again, he doesn't. He looks like he took the summer off or the off season off. So I don't know that he still maintains it. But I do think that was one of the things that unlocked the game for him. Yeah. So I. I mean, obviously, you know, that level of three point shooting is not going to happen. Uh, but I think uh, he can he be all-star level you know that's that even that mm. would be a, a large step forward yeah. and you know I, I think this offense to me has always been a little I shouldn't say always because they had some wonderful times you know really before they even were making the playoffs but they've been a little bit below where I would have expected offensively and a little bit above where I would have expected defensively last year they had a, a period for about two months where they were in the top five in defense and then that that right. cratered pretty precipitously as time went on but yeah that's the question to me he's the guy who's really going to need to unlock it and also then Michael Porter Jr. as well you think he's going to start at the three I think there's almost no question that that he is I mean Denver's entire plans this season are about bringing Michael Porter along to be you know the third wheel on this team or, or part of a big three and you know I, I'm so in the, the spectrum on takes on Michael Porter I think are so wide and to me here, here's the one thing I'll say about him I think he's clearly the third best offensive player that the nuggets have seen in this Jokic Murray era so from a talent perspective not necessarily from from an impact perspective just yet but the guy my favorite mixtape of the last year is just Michael Porter Jr.'s every bucket he made from the last season it's like 141 shots because if you watch it you just realize how what a wide array of shots that it is that he makes off the dribble threes transition threes catch and shoot offensive rebounds step back side steps like his his ability to make shots Obviously, he's so tall he can get them off, but his ability to make them is just at such a high level. And so another thing when we talk about Murray's year, I think just having a third guy that's a legitimate guy that scares the other team. I mean, he's a guy that 
his shot is so pretty looking and he can fill it up so quick that I think defenses are always kind of a little bit extra panicked about him that I think it is going to open things up for Murray. But, um, you know, so much goes into Michael Porter because to me, the talent is a 10 out of 10. I, I personally think he has the talent to be, you know, the best score or in the conversation for best scores of this sort of next wave of players. The question with him is just, there's that other aspect of basketball, the cerebral part of it, the fitting into a system, knowing when to identify shots, knowing how to like bend the court, because I think think to me he's primarily a tough shot maker and a, and a bucket getter but figuring out how to work that into a system that already has a very efficient offense how to elevate it to the next level that's the part that I think is so hard for this type of player here in Denver we're familiar with Carmelo Anthony he was always one of the best one-on-one scores he wasn't one, always one of the best offensive players because it didn't always translate to a big impact that's the question to, for me for Michael Porter this year is can he sort of figure out how to be one of five and and a very very good one of five or is he just a guy that is going to be a, a really good shot maker on you know a team that sort of focuses and emphasizes maybe too heavily on him because that's not what he has here in Denver it's going to be fascinating and, and you mentioned fitting into an offensive system I think just like fitting into the team almost emotionally as yes. well you know I, I mean that's you know I, I'll be honest like he seems like he's a, a, a guy who struggled with that whether it was the vaccine comments sure just so just some very tone deaf things that he'll say the background going back to him you know I, I had a scout tell me that you know before he was drafted that the world really seems to revolve around Michael Porter and you know he I'm glad that he has been able to get healthy that he's been able to make the strides that he did I mean I, I remember you and I had a conversation almost two years ago after I saw him at the end of his rookie year playing three on three and i'm like this he's got a really got a long way to go and physically he's gotten there he's gotten that bounce back um and then my other question too is just how is he going to be featured in the offense where are his shots going to come from and is it going to be at a point where he's really the initiator and you're running a play for him other than just come off a screen and shoot it or go back door for a dunk or and get something on the offensive glass or get something in transition is he gonna actually be able to initiate actions and also set up his teammates a, a little bit as well i think he's trying to make some strides in that area but you know i think he might be able to get 20 points a game even if they don't really feature yeah. him per se that much like he does have that kind of talent that that's the thing about him is i he he offensive rebounds incredibly well he cuts really well and Jokic loves those tall cutters because he loves throwing that sort of football fade route right at the rim where they just catch it and lay it in and he's perfect for that um so he can get these buckets but it's the number one question for me how much can he fit into what's already established and how much can michael malone and Jokic and murray adjust to kind of get him involved in the offense in a way that's meaningful and we talk about early returns this is again 20 minutes of a preseason game but i felt like that preseason game last night with against the warriors felt more like more or less like what we saw last year meaning it was you know michael figure out where you fit in not necessarily oh here he is he's the third option or he's running these pick and rolls and dribble handoffs it wasn't really like that and again it's only 20 minutes i'm not going to read too much into it but my it's the number one question to me this season and the number one question in my opinion about whether or not the Nuggets can become a true contender, not one of these fringe contenders that maybe gets hot and beats it, you know, upsets a team, but a team that you look at and go, oh yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if they won it. So those three guys, I think it's looking pretty clear like they're going to start. Yeah. Paul Millsap, I assume, didn't come back to not start. Uh, <laughs> maybe. 
10 million a year um uh, well so so who do you think if you think it's not gonna be him i think it is going to be him i just don't think it's a lock i think those other three are locks um, yeah well at I, the start of the year i think you yeah know, he could just be he, he could be a little oh uh out of gas by the end of the year maybe but or maybe he ends up kind of getting you know the keith bogans by the end of the year but he looked um, pretty he looked pretty old i thought in that preseason game he missed a couple shots at the rim that looked like he jumped about six inches lower than he thought he was going to jump yeah it's uh the finishing at the rim has has fallen off a bit uh, yeah. it was never something that he was incredible at to begin with i mean you know he hit some shots last night though which can help yeah. a little bit i mean i think on offense frankly i think he's going to be asked to just kind of space out and, and do yeah. more of that and open things up for cutters because as you mentioned like him being in the dunker spot when you can't dunk that doesn't that doesn't work <laughs> as well but and obviously he'll be out there to provide defensive stability which he still does he's still got the great hands he can still quarterback to defense you know he's still the the numbers are still really good in the regular season for him by the numbers he's the most underrated defender in the nba you were talking about the nuggets hovering around a top five defense or something that perfectly coincides with when he was healthy he missed the middle portion of the season like he missed a lot of time last year and that's when the nuggets were i think the 28th or 29th best defense in the nba for that stretch so the numbers when he's on when he's healthy and playing in the regular season the nuggets are a very competent more than competent defense he makes up for a lot of a, a lot of uh weaknesses on that defensive roster in the regular season so they started gary harris last night will barton isn't healthy yet it does seem more natural for barton to come off the bench although he was re-signed to be a starter in theory and he well outplayed gary harris yeah last year but and i think he was his uh shooting was really a revel- revelation i should say in addition to his defense last year you know he still yeah. really has not had good numbers in the pick and roll uh, as a you know kind of a backup uh, initiator type uh even though he has scored well so you know maybe there's a little bit more of a thought that he should just be the starting two because he has shot it better than gary harris and harris is also a really good defense player but barton has a little bit more size and maybe he's a little bit more able to to make plays defensively as a help defender and guard a little bit bigger players although he still you know is not the stoutest guy in the world yeah he's pretty thin um i'm worried about Gary, uh, about will barton's health you know he he got injured towards the in in february before the hiatus and you know when he came back for the bubble at first he was missing out practice then he played one half of a, of one of those ramp up games and then didn't play in the second half and then left the bubble and, and didn't return he went to yeah. rehab and work on it and you just do, look at the do you have any frame. idea what that injury actually is by the way <laughs> no, no i mean i have some i have some some <laughs> things but i don't i don't i don't think it's anything that's anything anything out front at, at, at the very moment but i don't i don't you know the nuggets still i think very much believe he can be a player in short order he's participating in practices he started to do some five on fives but you just look at the time frame and think okay february he starts to sit out we're all the way back in december and he actually has not played consistently since then come back and done little things here or there but it hasn't looked right so that's a long layoff and for him not to be able to kind of demonstrate that he can go through five on five at this point do you hold out hope that do you let him sit the month of december and in january and hope he comes back february i i think that's a really really tough call and even if he does come back let's say he sits out till february that is 12 11 or 12 months since he last played meaningful minutes minutes that's a Mm. really long stretch so then where does he slot into the rotation to me number one storyline this year is michael porter jr for the nuggets number two storyline is that gary harris will barton combo because i don't know your your point is great about will barton naturally fits off the bench because he's a scorer so 
okay, you put some more scoring on that second unit. He's more versatile, and the second unit needs more of that versatility. But Gary, we're talking about a backup small forward, and Will Barton can sort of imitate one on a second unit, no problem. I don't know that Gary Harris can. He's 6'4". Um, he's strong. He's stout, but I don't know that he's a... You start rolling out Compazzo, Monte Morris, Gary Harris, those guys were all three are going to be outmatched physically at their position. So I... I I don't know. That's whole the whole Gary Harris Will Barton combo to me is a bit of a mystery, and I think it's even a little bit of a mystery to the Nuggets right now. I think that's something that's going to kind of define the season in some ways. Yeah, and Harris just uh, hasn't been able to hit shots uh, right. mysteriously for like you know what is this almost three years now? I mean, we thought like yeah. when he got that contract, it's like holy shit, this guy's like a forty percent three point shooter and he plays great yeah. defense. And he's a great cutter and finisher at the rim, and and you know his two point percentage was pretty bad last year, and yeah. he saved them in the bubble and all credit to him for coming back after having basically not played for over six months to just get dropped into a playoff series against the utah jazz and you know he made one of the like defining plays of that series knocking the ball away from donovan mitchell to set up tory craig's missed layup but uh but but yeah and and i think i think actually even i want to say that harris got into position to contest that conley three at the end too like from absolutely out of nowhere he like sprinted back again i you might remember that better than me but uh he is he's an underrated on-ball defender in my opinion I, I think he's pretty close to elite i mean he's like a miniature drew holiday drew holiday longer longer arms you know stronger i think but his ability to sort of like just disrupt guys like donovan mitchell if you look at how many points donovan mitchell scored in that series gary harris came back in game six and i think donovan mitchell was averaging 40 something you know 40 points through yeah. the first five games and then he had like 20 points in the first quarter quarter of game six so it wasn't like he cooled off or got tired he was on fire in that game and Gary Harris checks in to start the second quarter and I think uh from that point on I don't know if if Donovan Mitchell scored 40 more points the rest of the, the series so he did a phenomenal job completely changed that series and saved it for Denver um of course Will Barton wasn't there maybe he would have had uh, some kind of similar impact and been more impactful on offense but Gary Harris can guard on ball I don't think he he's a great like you know he's going to elevate your defense outside of that so if you don't have a great guard I I don't know that he has a huge use for you on defense, but um, you know it's just a question. There's there's such different players, and Denver seems to be moving in a direction that doesn't really leave a lot of flexibility off the bench. So I, I have a sense that only one of those guys is part of the plan this year. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so when you Long-term, say that, you mean one of them is going to get traded? Right, exactly. That's yeah. what I mean. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Well, Harris has long been thought of as uh, the potential matching salary. Uh, although, yeah, I mean, the, the Nuggets are already out a pick now in 2023 with the Hampton trade. Right. And so, you know, are they going to go, when you think about what assets are available to attach to Harris to bring back, in theory, a player who's better than Kerry Harris and probably either a guard or a small forward at that, that's that's an interesting question and you know presumably if you're going to get the real superstars you would have to move michael porter jr and then you're, you're right. opening up even more of a hole there as well yeah that's gonna be fascinating to think about and i, I had forgotten what you'd said about will barton that he uh started struggling with that knee yeah. in february and I mean, all of this just seems like kind of arthritic tendinosis or, you know, some sort of a cartilage issue where he's just, he keeps trying to ramp up his activity and then ends up getting swelling and having to shut it down again. You know, like yeah. one, of, one of those chronic type of things and that's usually what it is when they just say things like knee soreness where it's it's like okay he didn't he doesn't have a ligament he didn't tear his meniscus and get surgery you know where they're just like okay he's got to get these like injections or he's like you know he's left the bubble to pursue 
use some alternate kind of rehab so yeah that is a concern and those sorts of things can pop up uh, again uh, very easily and the hope is that he doesn't end up eventually having to have surgery it doesn't sound like he has yet so but hopefully he, this he was the third yeah. best nuggets player though last year and, and that's the i, I don't want to say because who knows how that playoff run would have gone i mean jamal murray maybe he doesn't catch fire the way that he did if he's sharing the backcourt with another guy that can score but through most it wasn't a little in my opinion it wasn't a little loss that the nuggets didn't have will barton at any point last year because he was i i think easily the third best player on the team during the regular season yeah i mean i think he was a bigger loss for the nuggets than boyan bogdanovich was for the jazz in that series yeah, actually. i think that's, so too that's a it was a his him not being there was a big part of why i picked the jazz in that series as it turned out so close you were so close i think you called him in seven too i was so mad and you were almost you were almost perfectly right i was like the only one picking the jazz too which was shocking to me that like i mean i thought those teams are very even they're they're very even again this year frankly it always seems like and their matchups are always really interesting too. do the 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 gobert uh jokic matchup so yeah you know as we start to think about this you uh you augured this before we actually started recording you're like yeah i think these guys are a little bit different this year and i'm starting to see why yeah. as we really go through it to where you know they don't have grant anymore uh they obviously you know they lost Plumley. i mean that's that they're you know hartenstein he's gonna be he's a little bit of a question mark off the bench are they gonna play jamichael totally. green at backup center well then who's the backup four maybe they I mean, you probably want to maybe bring porter back in as the backup four maybe he can you can like run more sets for him let him eat a little bit more yeah. with that group are they going to split up murray and Jokic more like what do you think this happening. bench unit is going to look like here it does make sense that michael porter would would be able to kind of be the best player of that second unit i mean Jokic and murray just have such great chemistry and when they're on i mean the numbers bear it out when those two guys are on the court it almost doesn't matter who they're playing it think things are going well so i imagine you'd want to keep them together and then having a guy like Compazzo and monte morris two guys that can get the ball where it's supposed to go i, I think michael porter would probably be able to feast there especially at the four um where he'd probably have an athletic mismatch and most most of the time so um I, it, it would make sense to me but i i the nuggets just have so many guys that i think the plan is probably more to have what we saw against golden state which is a full-on five-man bench unit malone loved doing that last year most of the year when they when everybody was healthy they did run with a five-man bench unit so this year i i think they're really high on hartenstein that it's he's obviously going to be i think a feaster family he's only 22 years old so if he hits you know that's he could end up being a he has talent so he could end up being a very good backup center but he's unproven so if it doesn't work out then maybe you do have to get creative and slide green to the the five and work something else out at the four but um i think at the moment it probably is going to be more minutes than most teams go with a full bench unit not not a staggered one yeah, even uh, you're are you including Porter in that bench unit or no? No, I'm not. Five, and I, and I do think there'll be some staggering. So I do think he'll get yeah. he'll get there. But if you looked at the first, I don't know, six weeks of the season, seven weeks, the Nuggets starting unit had almost twice as many minutes as any other starting unit. And hmm. I think it's a bit of a Malone characteristic that he just likes, you know, he likes his units. He likes his starting unit, his bench unit. And you filter, you stagger those a little bit, but they always find themselves in a five man unit. Yeah, I mean, they really need Will Barton to come back. Uh, that's what yeah. I, I'm starting to really think here because, uh, you know, whether he's coming off the bench, I mean, I think you make a good point of if he starts and Gary Harris doesn't, uh, that, you know, you could take Will Barton out pretty quickly and bring in Harris and right, then right. you could maybe even play Harris and Barton together a little bit on the right. on the second year. But you're right. I mean, Gary Harris at the three is and those two small guards in the backcourt, that might right. be just a little bit too small, particularly yeah. when you don't have, you know, really a great backup center either. Um yeah, and you know, Hartenstein, he's, uh, 
I mean, I think he could be okay as a backup center in like a more conventional scheme than what it was in Houston. I mean, when they were doing all that switching, like that was never really going to work for him. He's got size. He'll, he can rebound and block a few shots, finish a little bit around the rim, get some offensive boards. I mean, I don't think he's particularly elite in any one area, but you know, I think he's, he's an NBA player, right? That's about yeah. as far as I'm willing to go on him. I would say. So you're not too, too optimistic. I mean, he's 22. Uh, I'm, I am curious. I don't know his game that well. You know, obviously I've done some of my back, you know, going back and doing some research, but um, I just know that I think they're pretty optimistic about his ability to be, you know, better than what you would expect for a backup center. But we'll see. I really don't don't really know just yet. Yeah, and actually, I mean, quickly, Zeke Naji, who I wasn't particularly familiar with, and obviously drafting a center at number 22, like, didn't exactly get me all a titter. But, <laughs> uh, you know, I thought they actually had him switching last yeah. night, which I thought was interesting. He showed some pretty quick feet. I mean, I hadn't watched any of Naji sure. other than, you know, a few scouting videos. Um, and he had, like, a little bit more pop than I thought. Uh, you know, I think there's probably a hope, and you would know about this better than I do, that he could stretch his shooting range out yeah. uh, to the three-point line at some point but i do like the idea of him being a little bit more mobile um now as of now doing a switching system when you're playing Compazzo and, and Monte Morris <laughs> on the yeah, yeah. the second unit that probably doesn't work as well but his defensive versatility was at least interesting to me so I think the scouting report on him and he, same thing I mean you know I only know his game based on what what research I've done trying to get to know him but the scouting report on him is very good shooter especially mid-range but in high school he had even you know deeper range he didn't necessarily show that off at Arizona but that was more of the system thing I'm told his shot looks gorgeous I think it's like the form of it and everything looks looks very very technically sound and then perimeter defense he's his blocks and rim protection uh you know metrics didn't look great but he's just so for a guy his size and i think he's a power forward not a center but a guy for a guy his size uh, uh, the rap on him is that he can be a really really elite perimeter defender so a little bit of a weird skill set in that he's tall but better on the outside of the court than the inside but that that's the scouting report on him. yeah so jamichael green is probably your backup for i wonder if they would consider playing him as a, a backup five some I mean, there may just be. I think so. Not amazing matchups for Hartenstein. Do you think yeah. there's any chance that they could use? Paul Millsap on the backup uh, on these some of these backup units. I'm so curious to see if Denver tries that in this preseason. If they try to start Jamichael Green and bring Millsap off the bench and maybe even play him at the five. You know, I don't I don't know how interested Paul Millsap is in doing that in his 15th year. But um, yeah. well, you well know. here's what I was thinking. I was thinking he starts, and then if you're not going to close games with him, you could give him a little bit of run at the mm. start of the second yeah. and fourth quarter as well, and maybe play he and Green together as your two bigs again to just get a little bit more mobility there yeah. than you know in matchups that don't really work for Hartenstein I think that absolutely is an option I don't think it's the first option for them but I, I do think that that's a lineup that makes sense to me um both guys can shoot it both guys can can guard their man so I, I for second units I could see it working um all right I think we really worked through the rotation here um you know, I, I guess still uh, PJ Dozier, RJ yeah. Hampton, those guys are, are backup guards. Who uh, I imagine Dozier is going to be ahead of Hampton in the rotation. So you would think N- N- Naji and Hampton, I think, are pretty much redshirt guys. I think yeah. RJ Hampton almost certainly. Zeke Naji, I think, mostly uh, unless he really impresses. But um, I think the plan is to slow play him. Com- PJ Dozier is the interesting one because he's a Michael Malone guy. I mean, Michael Malone.
Stallone loves P.J. Dozier going back. Oh, I, I didn't notice. <laughs> he loves him, and he even called him the MVP of training camp so far just, just yesterday or the day before. So he, you, you talk about Barton off of the bench. Dozier might be the 11th guy in a 10-man rotation, and this is why I say I'm not so sure that you know Gary Harrison and Will Barton are both going to be on the roster past the deadline. Is You might be able to slot P.J. Dozier into whatever role Gary Harris vacates, or you know maybe he's the backup small forward. Um, and, and you run with a lineup like that. That's what they tried at least last night against the Warriors. So that's something to keep an eye on because I know Mike Malone just really, really loves what he brings to the table. Can, can I ask you a question about him? Sure. Uh, what does he do here? PJ Dozier. Exactly. <laughs> well, I think he's a very good defender. Um, you know, he's a smart. He's a smart defender. He sees the court uh, a step ahead. Um, and I think even offensively, he's a very good. He has very good pick and roll potential. He gets to the rim. He kind of reminds me of Moutier in some ways, which I know that's not a great that's never a great comp but Moutier could always get to the rim and he could always get into the paint he just couldn't make the right decision or finish once he got there and I think PJ Dozier has a little bit of that as well he went down to the G League and scored a bunch of points but you put him up in the NBA level and he starts missing all those all those tough ones but I think he can handle the ball in pick and roll he gives you a third pick and roll ha- handler he makes the right rotations on defense and he can guard his guy with length um so those are those are things he can't shoot um but I think I actually think he does have some value I mean, I, I thought that, I, I think it was in the Lakers series that he closed the game. And I gave him alone credit in the first two rounds because all of his crazy, oh, you made two good plays, now you're closing the game right uh, yeah. decisions actually worked out. Um, and PJ Dozier was one of those. I think like there's one game where they closed it. It might've been game one, actually, of that jazz series where they closed it with Dozier and Monte Morris next to Jamal Murray. I, th- uh, I think it was actually game five. So it was that like a pivotal, yeah. uh, like a like you know a do or die one. Denver down three one, and I think it was that one. And then he didn't play in game six and seven. And I think the same thing happened in the Clipper series where he ends up going in in the fourth quarter, making some huge plays, and then didn't play after that. So Malone, it, interestingly enough, stuck with him in a moment that got him over the hump, and then didn't stick with him in a way that worked. And I questioned every single every single turn. I questioned, what are you doing here? And it worked out every time. So yeah. there you go. Yeah, and I mean, maybe I need to just watch, like, his defensive intelligence a little bit more. I mean, usually if there's a guy who's playing and I don't get it, that's generally the reason. You know, I mean, Jawan Morgan was kind of a similar guy for the Jazz in that series where, uh, and I I think there was one game where Dozier ended up closing it and they lost it, and I Mm. I really questioned it. I think it was in the Lakers series where it was like, ooh, he took, like, two charges and now, like, he's closing the game. You know, like that kind of thing where it's like, maybe someone who could make a shot would be useful here. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, I think he can get out there and not just completely kill you but the lack of shooting it is certainly yeah. an issue so yeah. um big strengths for these guys uh that we haven't talked about yet for the nuggets yes uh, you know, as a as a whole unit, I think one the continuity. I mean, you still have that Murray Jokic game that I just think means your floor is pretty high. Those guys, I've I think I've told you this, uh, Nate, and I've been arguing with Seth Part now now for a couple seasons, and I'm going to predict it once again. The Nuggets are going to outperform their Pythagorean win loss. Here you know, we go. Yeah, like we're I, they're going to do it again for I think the fourth straight year they're going to do this because they the Jokic Murray two man game is just such a like high floor way to close the game you just know what you're going to get they're going to execute it they're going to get good looks they're probably going to convert them so i think again this year they're going to have a lot of games where they're down six in the fourth and they come back and win by one um so they got that going for them they've got i I think they're going to space the floor better than they have in prior years in large part because of michael porter jr they're going to have a lot of depth we're we're sitting here talking
talking about who doesn't play that probably would play on most teams and you got a handful of options there so um i think they have all those you know all those the same things that they've had for the last couple years that have made them a 50 plus win team um i think they're going to bring all those things back yeah the depth i'm becoming a little more concerned about it actually if they don't have will barton i think there's and you know harris it's i'm not sure that he's a starting caliber player if he plays offensively the way Mm. that he did last year and you know Millsap, he he's i'm a little bit worried about him backup center to me is a huge question mark right now and they tend to get something out of these guys that i don't necessarily believe in but you know hartenstein is just kind of okay to me um you know and so yeah if they can slot will barton in and uh, obviously a trade could could change things as well and getting compazzo is good but they are a little bit small off that bench so i'm i'm a little bit worried about uh their defense and uh some of the the bench stuff and just they've got a few this has been the case for a while uh, but they have a few too many guys who are kind of one-way guys yeah uh, yep. on either end which is always a little bit concerning so that um, i think that's the thing we talk so we talk about the depth and i think it really works for you in the regular season it, but i think you will get into points where it's like okay we played too many non-shooters or too many non-defenders yeah. or you just you do have a lot of those guys that have one flaw and it works when you play them in the perfect combos because everybody kind of picks up the slack but the moment you have to go away from your perfect combos you're like okay well now we have three non-shooters out there what do we do so I, I do think there's some I, th- I think that's how I'd put it they have a lot of depth but there are a lot of guys that that have flaws yeah I mean really the only two guys you can point to on this team right now that you think of as like really solid two-way players are Barton and then maybe Jamichael Green although he's more of a supporting guy and you, you always he's shot it pretty decently the last couple of years but you, you wonder uh, yeah you know wh- whether that can continue he's certainly not a natural shooter so right. yeah yeah I'd say two-way play to me is probably as, as we get into some of their, their weaknesses I think that's one um I mean strengths obviously rebounding is something that I think people really miss <laughs> yeah. around the uh, around this team and they they bludgeon the Warriors on the boards a little bit at missing a lot of layups and getting I mean Jokic is a wonderful rebounder um they're gonna play two bigs most of the time porters are great rebounders so that's something that I think yeah. uh is always really good at that stand out I'm curious if they play fast I think one of the main reasons Composo was brought in is the Nuggets just play so slow and I actually probably failed to mention this when we talked about Composo, but if we go back and look at all of the guards that have played with Jokic, you've got Jameer Nelson, you've got Emmanuel Moutier, Jamal Murray, Monte Morris, uh, DJ Augustine. You, none of those guys, you know, Jameer Nelson, I think the most like sort of a, a pick and roll point playmaker, you know, yeah. uh, out of all of those guys. But none of those guys have had that quick first step. DJ Augustine a little bit, but he's more of a, you know, a scoring, scoring point guard. But I think with Compazzo, the one thing I'm so interested in is if he can just get into the teeth of the defense and Denver just hasn't had any of those guys. They're all technical and slow and, and maybe even a little bit big, but having a guy that can just kind of speed by and get into the defense is, I'm curious to see how that affects things because when Jokic did play with Jam- Jameer Nelson, of course, this was before the scouting report was out on Jokic, but he had, he had a ridiculous true shooting percentage. And a lot of that was because of what we saw in this Warriors game, which was Jokic just finding the ball at the rim, either off of rebounds or off of, you know, somebody getting into the teeth of the defense and dropping it off for him just to lay in. And I'm really curious to see if if Compazzo and even the growth of Murray sort of creates more opportunities for Jokic in that regard, because he hasn't had him the last couple of years the way you would expect. Yeah, I could see Compazzo gnashing under the basket and then finding yep. Jokic trailing at the dotted line for uh, that little floater. Like yep. I, I could see a, a lot of that. Yeah, that, that is 
is interesting. I wonder how, how much those two guys will play together. I mean, they're, they both are guys who really understand the game yep. extremely well. Um, any other weaknesses that concern you? I, I guess rim protection is, is something that you got to look at as well with these guys. Yeah, definitely rim protection. I mean, shooting is another one for me, though. As, as much as I think they're going to be a better shooting team, they've been so disappointing at that. And Malone, Michael Malone, the maybe the number one point of emphasis he's talked about so far was generating more three-point opportunities and especially corner three-point opportunities. Denver was fifth in the NBA, I believe, last year in offensive rating and one of the lowest three-point attempt teams, three-point attempt rate, three-point percentage, and corner three-point attempt rate. So they were managing to get this great office without generating what is you know a pretty essential look. And in that Warriors game, the, the early, again, this is early returns, but they weren't getting great looks in that game either. I think they had 11 at the half. So that's another thing that could just ultimately become a weakness. It's interesting to me, and you know, this is where I think the external perception and internal perception of Denver is the most off and I'm not sure what the right answer is, but Denver got cooked by the Utah Jazz. Well, they were missing their starting two and three. They get one yeah. of those guys back, and all of a sudden their defense looks competent again, and, and it looks like, okay, this isn't a bad team. They held the Clippers under 100 points, I think, three or four times, and never gave up more than 113, 114. I mean, they their defense was very solid in that series relative to what you would expect, and they go against the Lakers, and that was a defensive series again. When Denver lost, it's because they couldn't score, and particularly they couldn't shoot. And I wonder how much of Denver in the playoffs it becomes more about how can we get an offense that can't be shut down when you just dare the you know dare Gary Harris to shoot dare uh, Jeremy Grant and and um, Paul Millsap to shoot and I wonder if Denver is trying to solve that question more than they're trying to solve the rim protection which is what I think everybody thinks they need to solve yeah and I mean so much of it goes back to Jokic I mean you mentioned that you know it's really he is and, and I got in a lot of shit last year because I said that like his euro fouling to get his third foul Ugh. with four minutes left in the in the second quarter shows a lack of mental toughness and like hey, yes. he's hit all these game-winning shots like how can you say that he's not not mentally tough but like being mentally tough yep. means you're there all the time it's a yep. consistency of effort and his effort in the first four games of that jazz series was just turd atrocious like it was so bad well and it was the first three games of that series and, and yeah, i guess game four game four was a little bit bad like they started actually like protecting the rule a bit more in game four. so for, right. first yeah. of all you shouldn't have gotten shit for that nate that was a an eight that's an a plus take about him and his fouling like there's just no excuse for it especially in a playoff series where he gives those take fouls and you're thinking you know yeah. hey he, man, he did it again yesterday he got taken out yep. actually yeah. in the second quarter of a preseason game because he yeah. got his third foul because he of course did a yeah. euro foul in the first half i, I figured like you know Mike Bullo didn't need to do that. Maybe he's just right, sending right, a message right. to him. But uh, when, how do you get a guy to stop doing this? Because he knows it. Everybody knows. But I, I think you're right. It's it is a little bit of just that. He's such an emotional player. I don't think people realize that because he kind of looks a little goofy or this or that. But he is an extremely emotional. Like he can he can lose his um, cool very very easily. And um, that to me that's part of it. That's just that he gets frustrated. Sometimes he gets frustrated at a teammate and he'll take a foul. Um, <laughs> I always joke last year. Tory Craig, if Tory Craig wouldn't make the cut he thought, Jokic would throw the ball out of bounds and then look at him and just say like, yeah, that that's where you were supposed to be. And you knew he was doing it on purpose. He's just so the mental toughness thing to me it's absolutely he has a temper, it's a short fuse and it's one of those things that will limit him at some point. He has to he just has to stop doing that and he has to overcome it and so far I I do think he's better than he was maybe 2 or 3 years ago, but he still does it way more than any other superstar I know, you know, shoot himself in the foot. Yeah. I, like Russell Westbrook would probably be the only other guy 
that I would say yeah. who you, makes those kind of uh, plays where you know he would he would just foul someone even if the other team was in the bonus when he was like pissed off that he didn't get a call uh, yeah. uh, on the other end that kind of thing um you know so he could like have have a nice long chat with the ref <laughs> um oh, another thing too I think that probably didn't get enough play and is something that I think really saved them in the Jazz series was Jokic started shooting the three a ton yeah. and he started making it a ton. he's only 31 percent from three last year and I think he almost shoots it because he feels guilty and you know or, or like all right they're leaving me this wide open like i guess i got to take it like it's not something you look for and i thought in that series against utah perhaps because Rudy gobert uh, was doing a nice job on him he felt like all right i got to take this shot like this we're not going to get a better look than this in the course of the possession and again you mentioned the mental thing like i think just feeling free like hey whenever i see a glimmer of daylight i am jacking this three-pointer up his volume went up and his percentage went up. And so I'm interested to see how that uh, maintains this year because, you know, Yoke, he averaged like less than 20 points a game last year. Like he's, yeah. I, I want to see him at like 25 points a game. Yeah. So here's the funny thing, and you're going to laugh at this, but I'm telling you, I say the same thing every year, Nate, and it cracks me up. If you look at his three point percentage the last couple of years, basically 31% both years, rounding up, rounding down. Yeah. You go into the playoffs well above 40% and on higher volume. And, uh, you know, it, it taking even tougher shots or whatever or actually i guess 40 percent last year 40 to 43 percent um this this one that just happened and on higher volume and then if you open up his three-point percentage in the clutch you know close of the last five minutes same thing and so again this to me and and I, I probably wouldn't say this if i was just looking at the numbers but this is me watching Jokic over and over again his focus when it matters is just so much higher and when it's not his focus when it matters is up at a superstar level what you would expect when when it doesn't matter his focus is well below what you would expect for a superstar player so i actually think he's closer to a 40 percent shooter he's just not a 40 like the, there's the mental aspect of shooting that i just don't think he's locked in for uh, you know in that way but i would predict he's going to shoot 34 percent from three this year and i predict in the playoffs he's going to shoot 38 39 percent I feel good about that one. Yeah, I mean, because he can get that shot, that pick and pop three, yep. anytime he wants to, yep. because they're not uh, going to switch, you know, because he'll yep. just completely bludgeon them in the yep. post, you know, unless it's late clock. And so, I mean, he, he can get that whenever he wants uh, against a, a closeout. So, um, yeah, I mean, the hope is that it, he's kind of turned a corner mentally and it's just, it's not going to get all solved at once, but it's going to be uh, continuing improvement. And obviously what he's done as far as getting himself into shape uh, is uh, something that looks good there. So uh, you ready for some predictions? Let's do it. Okay. So offense and defense. Okay. I have these guys. My tier one on offense is Dallas and Brooklyn. And then tier two, I have a bunch of teams in the three to 11 group. And I have Denver, you know, right around where they've been these last couple of years, six, seven type of range that could, could go up. I think if, uh, if Houston loses James Harden, for example. But, you know, it, it's interesting. You were talking about him like, man, now they've got Porter in the starting lineup. They haven't had a shooter like this. But no, they actually still probably are going to have two relative mm. poor shooters for their positions in Millsap and Harris. And they do that because they got to... Uh, a, they don't have anyone else, and B, they got to get the defense up to where it needs to be. But is that where you kind of see them from a, a, an offensive standpoint, or you think they'd be higher than that? Well, it's a big range, 3 to 11. Um, yeah. I would probably have them more close to the top of that second tier than the bottom. In fact, maybe, I, I mean, I agree with you that a team like Dallas, I mean, you just look yeah. at the, what they did last year, they're probably going to Well, be up so here, let me, let me give you my 3 through 6. Okay. And, and I have them at 7. Clippers, Portland, Houston with James Harden, 
Boston. And then I have Denver at seven, Lakers eight, Milwaukee nine, Miami ten, Utah eleven. I mean, that's like those are some really good offenses out yeah. there, man. Like like to have to say the Utah Jazz are gonna be eleven and they've been like, you know, I mean you saw what they could do it uh when they weren't going up against like a, a great defensive team. Like they right. they had yeah. a, a period for two months where they were the number one offense in the league. Like yeah. there's there are a lot of good offenses out there this year. So it's it's not even necessarily a slight on Denver. It's just like th- there's a lot of good offenses. I would not be surprised if Denver was a lot higher than that, including competing for the number one. But I wouldn't pick it. I, I would say that I probably expect them to be, you know, around where they were this last year, which is somewhere right around five. And um, I it's it's going to break one or two ways this season with Michael Porter. Either he's going to be integrated into the offense, and if that's the case, then I do think their like best punch is going to be comparable to just about every team's best punch. Yeah. If it doesn't work out, then they're going to probably have a little bit of a more clunky, and maybe they fall down to nine ten or you know eight nine ten somewhere in there. So um, I think the upside for them is a lot higher. But the 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 biggest mystery of this team is Michael Porter, and he directly impacts their offense that much. Uh, and then defensively, I kind of have them. You know, around average, uh, I would say I, I have a tier from 11 to 17. So I have them kind of in that group. I So last year they were s- right around average again. So they were right there. Maybe this is a hot take prediction. In the regular season, I think they're going to be better than that. I think they'll probably, I, again, not high, but I think they'll probably be somewhere around 10, 10, 11. Um, so just a little bit better than last year because I think Jeremy Grant's impact defensively last year was probably a negative impact, to be honest with you, in the regular season. So um, I, I see a little bit of improvement there but somewhere between 10 and 15 sounds right to me yeah although i will say trading will barton for michael porter jr seems like a pretty big that's a great point to me defensively in the starting lineup yeah that's a really good point um and then you, you know i think I would say Grant is better than Jermichael Green. Jermichael Green's okay, but Grant, particularly moving his feet, to me is better than Green. He just uh, didn't he do it last year, though. That, like yeah. you said, he didn't play small forward until the playoffs. So yeah, I don't, I don't know that it'll matter as much at the four, but maybe. Um, yeah, and, and with the offense, you know, it's just, it's just so hard with Millsap out there. I mean, he really just doesn't yeah. have anywhere to stand, and they need him, but it's, uh, it's tough. I mean, just if they had like a really reliable stretch four who could guard. I would start to think the least because, yeah, they are going to be the number one offense. But when you just have a guy who doesn't need to get guarded out there, or if Gary Harris were going to be Gary Harris from right. three years ago and shoot 40%, then I think they could get in contention there too. But you just, you need more. Uh, it's just too easy to load up on those other three guys, it, it seems like to me. So. If they're um, going to commit to Bol Bol, which I have no idea, uh, they've they've been sort of pumping him up since the bubble, including coming into the camp, and then he plays six minutes in the first preseason game. So I'm, you know, who knows there? But if he if he does play, then I'm putting I'm moving Denver up offensively into top five, and I'm moving him down defensively to probably 20, 22, 23. So um, that that that'll be in it. There's a, that's another variable out here that I don't anticipate will become a big storyline, but could. Yeah, I mean, if he could just like move laterally a little bit better. I, I might feel better because he just it, it seems like he's just so thin that he's not gonna be able to play center one interesting like. thing i've heard about him that i wouldn't have anticipated is that he's a, he's really um picks things up quickly and yeah. i would have guessed the opposite but he just doesn't see i mean I don't, for whatever reason but apparently they're really he, impressed he's quite the savant it seems like yeah like for his shooting just like yeah. some of his touch like it's like he, he does seem to pick things up quickly yeah, so they're I, impressed I with that. his ability to sort of learn, and maybe there's a steeper learning curve than people anticipate with him. But um, again, he's such a wild card. I wouldn't, I wouldn't base too much of my analysis on him. I mean, maybe they could try him at backup center every now and again. 
I, I, I see him as a four, and I almost see him as much as a three as I do a five, which is to say that's not a net. Yeah. Neither are really. He's got such big weaknesses at both of them. But at four, around certain lineups, I think it could work. I'm just, yeah. you know, I'm curious to see what happens with him. Like I said, the six minutes was so few. I have a sense that there was something happening maybe behind the scenes, and that was a little bit of a not this game, but next one. But, um, you know, we'll see. They just have raved about him so much. They raved about him a similar. What do they say? Uh, just how, how talented he is, you know, and this isn't just like, I'm, you know, people I'm talking to behind the, behind the scenes. This is also teammates. Just this guy is a superstar in the making. Um, you know, Will Barton isn't the type of guy to just, you know, talk up people. You know, he's a guy that you have to earn his respect and he has it. Um, so, so many different players have just come out and said that they fully buy into this guy. And then we just, we don't get to see it very much. So, um, and then again, talking to coaches, Michael Malone, who has been very slow to praise Michael Porter over the last two years has been very quick to sort of point out how impressed he is with bull bull at every turn so um you know he's but he's just such a big mystery because until we see it i can't really base too much off of it yeah i mean maybe you could if you put him out there with jamichael and if the other team didn't have a big center who is just going to throw him around like a ragdoll the other thing they think actually that this team might consider is playing some zone yeah Uh, because they they have a lot of size malone's talked about it i think it's i think it it is a plan um i I think bull would fit in much better in those type of groups yeah they have some length that once you start stacking in you know michael porter and bowl and uh you know even the pj dozers who can play the two or the one i mean they can throw lineups out there that have a lot of length so that secondary lineups even i mean Composo really compromises all of that but you know outside of him there are combinations you could throw out in that second unit they'd say hey that'd be an interesting zone um yeah or maybe you could have Compasso come in early for jamal murray and then jamal murray comes out uh, with right. that group as well and then you do have additional size quickly here um what's their pick and roll scheme going to be like they're just going to kind of yeah. uh it's gonna be Jokic out on the floor they were dropping last night but that's uh you know preseason obviously so the nuggets have always adjusted this and and, and done a bunch of different things what i think is most effective for them and has been over the last two years is bringing Jokic up and being aggressive the question is you know Jokic is obviously so valuable to this team and i don't know as good a shape as he is in using him for 72 games to step out a step up on yeah you know on the ball is probably a bad plan i mean dropping him in pick and rolls is sort of a regular season plan but i think their final form is probably to have him be a little bit more aggressive i think he's better at that um don't let them get that running start at him that's how donovan mitchell i think if you looked at the numbers last year in that playoffs donovan mitchell was great in every single scenario in pick and roll offense but he was especially great at whenever Jokic tried to drop on him so i think he'll be he'll play up i think they'll trust their backside rotation and they'll trust their you know their help defense and their rotations yeah you know what i thought the adjustment that they made that really helped in addition to getting gary harris back was it just seemed like they decided that we are not going to like let the ball handler and pick and roll beat us and that they are going to help more one pass away which you know you're not supposed to do right that's good coach nick's videos that was that's like you know going back six years it's like do not help one pass away do not help from the strong side but the bucks have started to have some success with that the raptors have a little bit of like really being super aggressive helping off the three-point line with guards in the pick and roll and forcing them to give it up and particularly against teams that aren't great shooting teams you know they left Jokic back he was able to have more of an impact at the room but they finally at least they they found a way to shut off something right. in that jazz series exactly. and that ended up being the rim and correct me if i'm wrong here this is my my best recollection of it and so you know maybe we'll see more of that as well that's kind of like a little bit more in vogue and that does protect Jokic a little bit more so the guy's not going downhill you got that guy swept 
swiping in so the, the guard has to pick up his dribble maybe a little bit earlier than he wants to he can't get that running start uh, um so maybe we'll see a little bit more of that uh, as well Composa last night interestingly enough and this I, I haven't gone back to rewatch it I'll probably make a video about this but last night it looked like in pick and roll they were switching off as you mentioned one pass away and having Composo sprint over the screen and then to the usually the corner or wing guy that was being helped so it was almost like a, a veer switch like a pre-switch where he would stop guarding the ball chase over the screen and then run to the corner so I don't know if that happened organically or if that was part of the scheme I'm gonna have to go back and watch it but it happened a few times last night where I got huh that's interesting that he's so yeah. fast and he plays so hard that he kind of covers that ground you know before anything could happen yeah, the Jazz, I mean, they kind of started doing that with Harden when they're like, oh, we're just going to let James Harden drive. It wasn't pick and roll, but it was, we're going to let James Harden drive. And then whoever was guarding him and forced him to drive to his right hand, you just go run to the corner. We're going right. to help off the corner. Exactly. It. Yeah, yep. that was, uh, that's, uh, I mean, I think it's, it, we're always seeing more of these developments. And I think that's something that, it, uh, ironically, it was Jim Boylan who I had on my podcast. And he, oh, wow. he said, one of the first things that we try to tell guys, and this is something that resonated to me, is you can cover way more ground than you think you can. Yeah. And you know, I think that's really true as far as like being able to help into the lane and then still get out to shooters in that kind of one pass away situation in particular. What's interesting to me about that, and we're kind of getting almost further afield here, but Jeff Stotts, who does uh, in-street clothes, um, has talked about a rise in core muscle injuries. And his theory, and this is just a theory, I don't even know if it's provable, but the NBA requires defenses to move so much more laterally, doing exactly what you're talking about, yeah. stepping into the paint getting out and he said th those movements are the ones that put the most sort of torque on your your core muscles so um yes to jim boyla's point yes that is correct you can cover more ground than you think but over the course of 82 games you know maybe you end up having a few more core injuries than you anticipate in the nuggets gary harris will barton the two guys that are the biggest question mark both core injuries are, are a large part of what has struck them over the last couple of years yeah i don't know if jim ever fully managed to impart that to zach levine uh, <laughs> as it turned out but yeah so we we got sidetracked a little bit here but i i enjoyed it let's get back to predictions last year uh this team was on a 52 win pace over 82 games if you include the bubble uh their expected wins per 82 only 46 wins <laughs> and so that's a pretty big difference for them as you alluded to earlier yeah but I, as uh I must do as an analytically focused person, I kind of start with that as the baseline sure. of them being a 46 win team. I don't, I, they're going to be better than that. I'm going to pick them to be better than that. Last year, by the way, uh, if, for memory, you had them for 55 wins, I had them for 53 wins. Um, mm. And so, I, I mean, I think Jokic is just going to be really good. Like the fact that, that he, I mean, part of why they underperformed a little bit last year was just because he just wasn't good the last couple of, uh, the first couple of months. And I think he's going to come out and be awesome. And, well, what did they go in the bubble yeah. in the, the seating? I think they went two and six. And if you remember the first game, the, the first game they played bowl was at, at point guard or, you know, they had, the, they had some weird lineups. So yeah. They, they had some problems. They, they purposefully tanked a few games. <laughs> I mean, more, more than one of the games in there kind of trying to set the set their matchup or what have you so i think 55 I, I had that played out normally i think they would have been exactly at 55 i think they were on pace for that yeah i mean we'll it, we'll see i can't remember whether how hard their schedule was like supposed to be right right last right, year course, or, yeah. or not um but yeah i think Jokic is going to be better um you know i think they're going to get a little bit more out of porter i think the offense will be a little bit better um you know i think they're going to be kind of right around where they were fundamentally last year um i i think i see these guys playing at kind of a I'll call it like a 52 win pace okay this year so i, I also just think that their depth is going to be more important i'm a little bit worried about like 
like the backup center i don't know if their bench is going to be as good as it has been um i'm also a little bit worried about michael porter jr's health too like whether he's going to be able to play 35 minutes Mm. that's something we haven't seen from him yet and he does have a lot of injury issues in his past with his knees and his back so that's yeah that's a concern if he can't play 35 minutes during the regular season i think that kind of knocks him down barton is also a concern yeah. if you told me that will barton was me healthy all year uh yeah. you know i think i would probably have them like comfortably into the 50s i agree i'm a little bit more concerned now and i don't think people are going to be pressing that hard during the regular season so i think 52 win pace that works out to 46 wins during uh the regular season for my prediction i think that's pretty close um i part of my when i when i talk about what i think they're going to win i think the west has more good teams than it did last year um so i think that the high-end teams the top three four seeds will probably have a little bit fewer wins than you would expect um i'll go ahead and i'll go above you just to be more optimistic i'll say yeah i'll say 54 i'll be the i'll be the homer and say whatever the 54 pace is adjusted um i think they'll be right back to that that would be 47 wins 47 so it's actually only only one more that's the break actually (laughs) that's funny uh where you only go up one more win even though you're there you go you're playing at a better pace um I could see yeah, it. I um, mean, this season has a little bit of boom and bust potential for the Nuggets because of all, and I mean, Michael Porter, obviously, right at the top of that. So, I look, it could go south for them. I don't think they would miss the playoffs unless something catastrophic happened to Murray or Jokic, but um, I, I could see them being a road team in the first round of the playoffs. But I, the default position I have is that, that they'll be a they'll have a home uh, a home series. Yeah, I mean, and let's not forget, I'm saying that they're going to play better than they did last right, year right. over the course of the, re- of the regular season, and significantly yeah. so. Um, so, I, I may have to think about this a little bit more and kind of see because I, I think you do make a good point they're they're actually going to be playing a larger percentage of their games against the east this year at least assuming that uh right the games take place as scheduled and so that's uh but the east is going to be a lot better this year i think there's they're not going to be just atrocious teams at the bottom of the east the way there were before so uh, there'll be injuries there always are going to be bad teams it's just but it's hard to necessarily anticipate who those they uh, drew are the going pacific i don't know if this matters but they drew the pacific as the team that they play two road games one home game so they will they will get phoenix lakers clippers warriors all twice on the road and once at home so i don't know if that that hurts them just marginally i'm fascinated to see what home court advantage looks like i mean the yeah it didn't end up meaning anything but you know is this will be a, a fascinating experience uh, to just figure out you know is it just that you're traveling like what is it about if, home court if traveling isn't if the thing though i think denver actually might have a big advantage there because denver sure. is two hours away from every every city outside of utah and oklahoma city and yeah. it has that airport that's an hour away from downtown so denver i think my, it, with the condensed schedule denver's home court might actually be a little bit more valuable than usual when adjusted for everything else yeah and for the altitude maybe can yeah. uh can play in there as well all right well where can we keep up with everything you're doing before we go here i mean all the you know all the basics i'm sure social media will be in this uh, account here and then our youtube channel is probably the best way for you to catch up on, on all the cool stuff that we're doing over there which is just dnvr uh, on youtube yeah i need to subscribe to that actually i'm looking forward to uh seeing what you find when you dig into the preseason film about whether they're really like have this new pick and roll scheme or not that would be fascinating um all right thanks again for coming on adam uh, always a pleasure to have you thanks so much nate at bet365 we don't do ordinary we believe that every sport should be epic every goal every game every point every play from the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period whatever the sport whatever the moment it's never ordinary at bet365 
21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.